Welcome to the Breaking the Stars podcast, where we feature stories of people from non-traditional backgrounds that broke into tech. If you've ever been arrested, you've probably faced obstacles when trying to apply for a new job. Sometimes those obstacles are so great that you're forced to do what you were doing before. Some people call that the trap. Other people call that recidivism. On today's conversation, we speak with Divine, who was in and out of jail over a number of years, befriended a billionaire, and broke into tech. You may have heard about a story in Forbes, Black Enterprise, TechCrunch, and other publications like that about how he befriended that billionaire. But on today's chat, we bring it back to where it all started to not only cover that relationship, but also what recidivism is, the mindset that's required to break the cycle of recidivism, and the playbook to break out of the physical or mental prisons that you may currently be in to go from incarceration to innovation. You don't want to miss it. Check it out. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies, Archer and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Into Startups podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yes, so we're recording the second episode of 2017 out of the office admission bit. It's 9 p.m. on a Sunday, and it's the day before the Martin Luther King Day. We often say, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, under it, or through it. Our conversation today is going to be exactly about that. Ruben, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, thanks, Timo. So we're here with the homie Divine, who's best known in tech for his relationship with Ben Horowitz. Now, before that, he was locked up for 10 years, broken the tech, is now providing affordable financial access and inclusion to the financially excluded, along with financial literacy and entrepreneurship education to people through his new startup, Black Fintech. So, Divine, you know, you remember how we first got connected. Can you, can you tell the people a little bit more about how we, how we got plugged in and started building our relationship and, and take us back to where it all started? Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me. Appreciate you all. Um, it's an honor to be on, be on the podcast. As far as me and your relationship, Ruben, it began after um, there was a, a large whirlwind around my relationship with Ben Horowitz. When I had linked with him, there was a lot of buzz throughout the tech community. TechCrunch did, a, did an article on me and actually specifically on the relationship between me and Ben Horowitz when I released a, uh, a video tribute to him on his birthday with the song I wrote for him. From there, a lot of buzz was going on, on social media, specifically Twitter, and uh, you reached out to me. I believe it was on Twitter. Asked me for my number. We connected. You've been we've been friends for a while, and then once we connected, we started building. I think we spent an hour on the phone the first time, and you asked me basically how I did what I did, how I was able to break into technology. That you wanted to follow a similar path into tech. You had uh came from investment banking, and you actually taught yourself investment banking, which I was truly impressed with. And uh, the way you articulated yourself made me that much more impressed with you. And I knew I had somebody that I was talking to that was intelligent, that had the wherewithal, that had the, the determination and ambition to reach beyond where he was at. And I knew that, and I felt positive about connecting you and, and linking with you and becoming a friend. Yeah, and so that advice led to you know us writing a story about our relationship, and it grew into the brotherhood that we have today, and us meeting Archer and Timor and the Breaking Stars blog that blew up. A lot of people know about your story, and that was covered in TechCrunch. Today, we want to cover, you know, Divine before he was incarcerated, before he met Ben. Um, so we'd love to, you know, learn a little bit more about, you know, how Divine grew up or how he even came up with the name Divine. I was incarcerated 
And uh, while I was incarcerated, I got deep into spirituality. And it was spirituality that really formulated the name Devon. And then it even took on a greater, a greater, greater meaning, not really greater, but took on an additional meaning later on after I got into technology. But uh, specifically, while I was incarcerated, I started getting heavily, heavily into African-American history and really studying that real heavily. I became really, really spiritual. And from that, my name, my birth name was Damon. So out of, out of the name Damon, D-A-M-O-N, I formulated Divine Master Cipher Now. And that was basically telling me to take control of my destiny and my life. And I did that through a mathematic and a spiritual system, as well as an alphabetical system. And applied all that to my birth name. In hindsight, I would learn that the word Damon was actually a, actually a spiritual entity that inspired and pushed individuals to greater, le- to greater heights of understanding and knowledge and wisdom. But after that, after I got into technology, it took on another meaning. So divine also means determined, idea, visualization, infinitely never ending. So take us back to your childhood. Where did you grow up? Do you live on the East Coast, West Coast? What, were, what was your community like? What kind of interests did you have growing up? Okay, so it's, it's real interesting, my, my story of um, where I was born, how I elevated from where I was born to, to where I, I went and, and the things I experienced in life. I was born in Newport, Rhode Island. And what's interesting about Newport, Rhode Island is that it's known as the uh, country's first uh, resort. If you know anything about it, Taylor Swift has a house out there. It's been in the papers and a lot of celebrities had houses out there. Michael Jackson way back in the day, but it's more of a tourist town and it's, it's a white dominated. So I was never really exposed to, to black culture, African-American culture. My mother was actually born in Massachusetts and she was um, given up for adoption at a young age since she was raised by nuns. What's interesting about that is that she really instilled high morals and, you know, being respectable and, you know, having mannerisms, having, having positive mannerisms. She instilled all that that she had learned from the nuns in me. So it was awkward that I would find a path into criminal activity, and then end up in prison for so long, so forth and so on. Anyway, Newport was a very, it's a very racist town. Growing up as a kid, it was like more middle class than anything, right? But when my mother had an uh, emotional mental breakdown due to some things concerning my father, she turned to drugs to get over it, you know what I mean? And that's when she turned to crack. And that's when my life took an abrupt turn to being impoverished, living poverty in the projects. So what would happen later on, I would start traveling from Newport, Rhode Island to Philadelphia. I would be exposed to New York City. And I, I instantly was gravi- I gravitated towards New York City because hip-hop culture and hip-hop music had really influenced me at that young age. And it was all about New York hip-hop. And New York wasn't but two and a half hours away, south, right? So I started traveling to Philadelphia, mostly getting drugs and doing that. I was absorbed into, into Philly-style hip-hop and all that. So... At a young age, I was traveling. And how old were you at that age? I was probably, um, like, my first exposure to New York City, my first trip to New York City, I was probably, like, probably 11 or 12, around that age. And when you say you traveled, was it, did you just get on the train and go down there by yourself, or how, how did that happen? No, my first trip down there was with some, with some, um, some of my peers that were living in the same projects I was living in, and they actually had left New York to, for a better life and came up north to Newport, Rhode Island, and they were living there. I befriended them in the hood. And I went out there with him, and I went to the Bronx. First time exposed to the Bronx and, you know, hip-hop. And I knew that was a birthplace of hip-hop. So there was a strong affinity built for New York City. And then later on, it would play a strong role in my life. New York, and specifically Brooklyn, which we'll get into later on. But um, 
going back and forth, I was one of the first dudes to really travel beyond Newport. Even in, in the state of Rhode Island, not many dudes from Newport at that time would even travel outside of Newport to go to the, the main city, which is Providence, the capital of, of, of Rhode Island, which was crime-ridden, um, a lot of murders, a lot of violence, saturated with guns, and of course drugs at that time. We're talking, we're talking you know, the, the mid-80s when it was a crack epidemic and crack just infiltrated all forms of inner, inner city and, and urban communities. And to speak on further on Newport real quick, is that you would never think that crack cocaine or the crack, or I guess basically remnants of the crack epidemic would even reach there. Unthinkable, but it did. And it affected my life. And it took me from Newport to New York and so forth. And so you said that, that New York, that exposure to New York enticed you and you started getting into drugs. Like how it wasn't you using drugs, it was dealing drugs. Or Can you talk a little bit more about your first exposure to drugs and like how that led you to getting incarcerated? Oh, yeah, yeah. So so my mother, um, like I said, she had emotional mental breakdown due to some things with my, my father. And, and by the way, my father was very, a very um, influential, affluential, a wealthy man in Newport. He was, um, he's in the uh, roofing and painting business, and he was one of the first, a real first substantial entrepreneurs starting a business, being black and Native American as well, in Newport that, be, that was successful. And he made a lot of money, and, you know, and he lived in a, in, a, in a prestigious area of Newport. So that was interesting that, you know, he was never part of my life. I knew who he was, but he was really never a, really a father to me. Anyway, my mother's uh, mental and emotional breakdown would lead her to move to Louisiana. So when she left me and my brother with our older sister, it was I think it was like six months to a year later, she flew us down to Louisiana. And that was my first time being in the Deep South and, you know, a new culture, a new, new situation. And she had um, went down there with a, with a guy that was, you know, wasn't a, a positive influence on her. My, again, my mother was raised by nuns. She was never into drinking or doing drugs and none of that. But when I got down there, I, I took notice that she was around some real peculiar people and individuals that was, that was definitely not her, not her type of individuals I've known her to be around. And um, a lot of things went down down there that I bear witness to. Drug dealing. I almost got shot with a dude that was in, in my crib playing with a gun. Bullet came through. I could feel the wind of the bullet when it when it passed me, right? Almost blew my head off. And then I started going in. My, my mother had a safe. I started going in a safe, playing with a gun, 25, taking a gun out, playing with it. You know what I mean? Not even realizing, like, the power of a gun and what I was really doing. It just intrigued me. I'm grabbing the gun, playing with it, pointing at my brother. You know, it was, it was just a crazy time. And you're, like, 12, 13 at that age, right? Yeah, yeah. Nah, nah. I was actually younger than that. It was around that same time. That same oh. time everything happened. Around, around 10, 11, actually. 10, 11, wow. Yeah, around 10, 11, actually, actually. That had went down. So we was down in Louisiana, Leesville, Louisiana, for about a year. Then we came back We came back up top to Newport, and that's when I realized my mother was actually selling drugs. So we started living in the projects there, and my mother was actually selling cocaine. But at the same time, she, became, she started using it. So it wasn't long before the use took over the selling. Mm-hmm. And I was like one of the first dudes in, in the hood that had the Nintendo you know, mm-hmm. Nintendo game console because my mom mm-hmm. was making that bread. Yep. She was making that dough. At the same time, I would see people coming in and out of my house like late, late night, early morning. It was like, you know, where you get, where you cop the drugs from. So that was like crazy. It was a really, really, um, really a rough time for me. Just really like, just dealing with people coming in and out of my house. My mom's not being there. Then when she got addicted to the drugs, the dynamic changed. It wasn't no more her giving us money. It was more so she was selling everything in the crib just to go get crack. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I would wake up late night or early morning, 
looking for my mom. She wouldn't be there. I sometimes have to go through the hood, knocking on doors, trying to find my mom's, like, where she at? She's in the crack houses with everybody else, smoking crack. There was no Christmases. You know, back then I, I dealt with Christmas. There was no Christmases. We, I think she used to get us like a Monopoly game every year, and that's all we got. Did you turn to selling selling drugs to try to bring those that lifestyle that you had before back? No, nah, it wasn't so much bringing it back, but it was so it was more so just really trying to provide for myself and my younger brother. You know, when when my mom's got caught up in that crack epidemic and, and, and using crack heavily, like you know, there was hardly any food in my crib. You know, we we had hand me down clothes, and I have to go to school. You know, with, sometimes with holes in my knees. You know, with certain clothing and all that. So that like really like bothered me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because everybody, I could never have like friends come over, brothers that I click with, have them come over. Because they could never get no food in my crib. You know what I mean? Like, it was like that severe. Yeah. But I still try to maintain a sense of, you know, happiness. And, you know, I rode BMX bikes and I, and I did all that. But eventually it just got so overwhelming that I couldn't focus on school. And I started, like, gravitating towards the streets when a lot of people from the uh, capital of Providence started coming down to Newport and really, really infiltrating Newport and selling drugs. Mm-hmm. So they were out there really before Newport dudes were out there doing it. Mm-hmm. It was these dudes from Providence coming down there. You know what I mean? So yeah, it was a crazy time. Yeah. So I know this from knowing you, and then we've talked a little bit about the pre-chat, about how whenever you dedicate yourself to something, you, you excel. And so you, you didn't just start selling drugs. You were very good at selling drugs, and you became pretty big. And then you, you know, what led to, you know, how did, you know, when did you get locked up, or what age were you when you got locked up? Yeah, so, um, so to answer the first part of your question, yeah. I became really, really good at selling drugs. And I think it wasn't so much, you know, I was young. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 13 years old, man. I started selling drugs, working for a dude from out of Providence. My man Fish, he was African. He was down there selling, selling. you know, back then it was, they called uh, caps and crack caps, small, small plastic vials of crack. I would sell them, sell them for him. I was still going to school. And I would, it was so rampant selling crack and making money. Everybody could be on the block selling crack and everybody's making money. So I started, you know, making $2,000, $3,000, stacking my money up, buying more products, saving my money. And I really was focused on early on, like having a business sense in that way of how to save my money, buy more product, save more money, stack more money, buy more product. Because I knew the more product I had, the more money I was going to make, the more the profit was there. And then I elevated from selling for somebody to selling for myself. Once I discovered how to source product for myself and got connections to actually get powder cocaine, cook it up myself, and then I started building my empire, quote unquote, and that's how I saw it in my mind. And it was strictly for me to survive. It wasn't more so I wanted to get the bends or I wanted to have the jewelry or none of that. All that comes with it. Yeah. And I dev- definitely indulged in aspects of that, but um, that was never my focus. But I made a lot of money in a short amount of time, and I was always envied and hated on because I was so good at what I did in the drug game. And, and you're be- also like, how old were you at that point? Like 16? So this is like from 13 to the age of 19. Uh-huh. From, from 13 to the age of 19, I grew from a 16th of, of powder cocaine, you know, to going to um, three and a half grams, as we call it, an eight ball, to getting a, a, a quarter key, to getting a kilo, and it, it just elevated. The more I saw, to me, it was like this. The more I saw, you know, the, the ability for me to make money and make it fast, the more I wanted more money. Mm-hmm. Just, to, just to just escape poverty, to maybe free my mom from her addiction, to mm-hmm. be able to leave. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting thing about this is that I was able to do that. I focused on getting a kilo of cocaine and selling a kilo of cocaine. And then within those years from 13 
to 19, I accomplished that. Mm-hmm. At that time, what was your mindset when you were like stacking up cash? Uh, do you ever consider like saving up enough money and like quitting the drug business and moving to a different industry? Or was it just the money was like so good that you just kind of got hungry and you wanted to sell more, you wanted to earn more? What was your mindset like? My mindset was to get to that kilo because I knew that if I got to the kilo, then the money that I got from that, you know, quote unquote, solved my problems. And my only problem was that my mother was addicted to crack. Mm-hmm. But then my next problem was that I'm out here selling crack. Mm-hmm. I've become a substantial drug dealer out here mm-hmm. you know, in Newport, Rhode Island, one of the biggest to date. So what, what ended up happening is that I became too big, too fast. And you know, they took notice and they came and arrested me. I was 19 years old. But to answer your question prior to that, I was actually in the midst of opening a sneaker store, getting out of the drug game, and going to um, New England Tech, going to, going to school for uh, radio and video. I actually got uh, financial aid, but unfortunately, the financial aid had to be in my mother's name. And when I got incarcerated, they gave it that $10,000. Got it. So they arrested you. Part of, A lot of things influenced you growing up, including hip-hop and all that. Is Did you start writing rhymes or gravitating towards music when you got locked up, or were you writing this whole time? And Yeah. Now, I've, I've, been, I've been in hip-hop since I was about 10 years old, writing, recording, performing as well. It was always something that was just natural for me. I, I loved it, braced it heavily, and it's something I always wanted to do. But it was never something I just I wanted to like be, make a career out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I had to you know I had to run DMC posters, LOQJ posters, mm-hmm. NWA posters, and all that on the walls. Mm-hmm. And I always definitely had a vision of, of wanting to do hip hop. Got but it. Not on the level until I got incarcerated. To where I, I said I was gonna make it a career. Yeah. Or try to make it a career. And when when you got in there, how did you feel? Like after, I mean, you've. You were doing this for like six years before you got locked up, you know, where you're like, oh man, and you know, I was almost free with this sneaker store and going to school or like, what was your mindset? That was the irony of it all that I had, I had amassed enough money to where I felt I could quit. I wanted to change, I wanted to change my life. Yeah. So even, so that's the whole thing. I've always been ahead of my time. My mind's always been mature at a young age. So I did things different. I saw things different. My perspective was always deeper and I always knew I had this gift, this above average gift. I just didn't, at a young age, I just didn't know how to control and master it and how to channel it. Mm-hmm. I allowed internal circumstances to dictate the internal mm-hmm. as opposed to that gift that I had, that internal, and allow it to dictate the external. And I, I did in a way and I didn't in a way. I did in a way because I wanted to survive mm-hmm. and I wanted to you know, make money and maintain. So I was able to figure it out using internal to master the external of selling drugs. Mm-hmm. And how do I amass money and get money and get to that kilo? I did that. But really, at the end of the day, I always wanted an exit strategy. I even thought about that at a young age. So the very moment that I had came back from New York City with all these drugs, the state police is in front of my crib in the projects, but I'm thinking it's for my man. And I'm like, looking like, okay, whatever. The next day, I go to make a drug sale, and I get bagged. I get arrested, and I go away to federal prison. But again, prior to that happening, I was moving out of the, out of the ghetto, out of the hood, mm-hmm. out of the projects opening a sneaker store mm-hmm. and going to school. Yeah. I had enough money to do that. And it sounds like kind of selling drugs was your way of reaching financial well-being, like financial independence. And for in your circumstances, you were, that was kind of the only thing you knew. Like that was the only thing that you, you saw your mom doing it. You saw that, hey, I could actually achieve financial independence by and get myself out of here by selling drugs. So you were kind of like born into the system in a way. And then like you mentioned, like kind of letting the external... Uh, affect your internal yeah. instead of channeling that energy towards I don't know another field 
you use that on entrepreneurship and creativity on kind of getting deeper into the, the the drug game. I'm curious. So what happened once? So once you got arrested for your like kind of a, this first big arrest, how long was your sentence? And like how long did you end up? How much time did you spend in jail? And then did you end up getting released, or what was what happened afterwards? Okay, so um, so let me backtrack real quick. So as a juvenile. I was arrested. I did, I, did, I did a drug sale as a juvenile. Mm-hmm. I was 17 years old. I sold to a confidential informant, crack. Mm-hmm. And I was later arrested on it, like six months later, whatever it was. I was on a run for a little while, ducking the police. Mm-hmm. I finally decided I'm going to turn myself in, you know, and deal with it. When I turned myself in, I was 18. Mm-hmm. And at first I did that for a particular reason. Because if I was 18 and they charged me as an adult, I would go to the adult, adult institution. But then I would be able to post bail as an adult. So if I was a juvenile, I'm not posting no bail. I'm going right to jail and that's it. So what ended up happening was I got an attorney. He convinced me to take FOC, further order of the court, and which means they could help me till I was 21. I was 18 at the time. So I agreed to it, didn't opt to get charged as an adult, went to the juvenile facility, and then realized the deal I, the deal I did, I could be sitting there for three years till I was 21. So my next move was, how do I get out of this now that I'm trapped in here mm-hmm. and they could hold me? Yeah. And- I apply my mind, as I always do, and I said, you know what? I'm going to do everything I need to do for them to recommend my release. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. I ended up doing nine months. I got out, but I had to complete my GED first. I got my GED in the juvenile facility. I got out in nine months on an FOC sentence where they could help me for three years. So I was 21. No one believed it. The judge was like, I went back to court the first time. I had prison staff coming in, vouching for me. I had letters written. That's awesome. Vouching for me. <laughs> The judge said, listen, there's no way, there's no way. You've been in jail for three, four months. There's no way. Come back in four months, get your GED, and we'll talk about it then. So that's a whole other story within itself. <laughs> but um, only out from that sentence six months, and I was up to a, moving a kilo of cocaine once a week into Newport, Rhode Island. Wow. I was back and forth to New York doing that. For the people that don't know about how much money is that per week at the time. Wow. So 36 ounces in a kilo, $1,400 an ounce. That's like $50,000 somewhere. That's a lot of bread. And that's wholesale. That's just wholesale selling. I didn't include the portion of my, the aspect of my my business where I would break it down myself and have people work for me on the block and sell it for me in a a, a more quote unquote retail process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I was grabbing a kilo a week, bringing to Newport, Rhode Island from New York City. The fish added on. So what happened was that arrest, that big arrest. Yeah. Came in September of um, 19, 1992. Mm-hmm. I was out six months. I went to go make a move. I think I sold them like 11 ounces, 11 ounces of powder and a little, like about 14 grams of, of quote unquote crack. And um, I ended up getting seven years for that. So they gave me 84 months in prison, which comes to seven years. They gave me three years supervised release on top of that. So when I came home, I was on supervised release. And, you know, I left the love of my life at the time. My son's mother, I had my son, he was three years old. And that was like one of the hardest days of my life, man. And the judge told me to consider it like going away to college. They didn't care. Seven years? Seven years. Consider it like going away to college. He said, it didn't matter my mother's drug addiction. It didn't matter any circumstances of my of my childhood, my mother not being there, being impoverished. None of that mattered. They gave me seven years because initially they tried to give me 30 years in, wow. in, in state prison. Now, as a first-time offender, as an adult, I would have done, they wanted me to serve 10 years, 30 years total would serve 10. On the 10, I would have done it probably like three years because my first time offender, I would have got out in three years. I hired a, a mob attorney, one of the best mob attorneys in the state of Rhode Island at the time, Cicilline. He actually had um, worked for Patriarca, 
crime family from uh, from New York City, but this, is, the Patriarchs was the extension of the Gambino crime family in Rhode Island. And their attorney, Cicilline, was my attorney. Gave him 10000 down, you know. But when my, my case got to the feds, he was like, I need 30 more thousand. I'm like, yo, I'm in jail. Get me out. I'll get you 30K. No problem. But, you know, I had, I had money on the streets. People had product of mine. I actually had product hidden. So I knew if I got out, I could get to my product, get to my people, get to my money. I was good. I could beat this case. But I didn't know how the feds worked. I wasn't beating no case. I was going to jail, period, for seven years of my life. The good thing in that I was incarcerated for them nine months in juvenile was really the worst prison time I ever served in my life because it was the first time I was incarcerated. But that strengthened my fortitude, my mental, my spiritual, and my emotional fortitude to prepare me for them seven years. Can you take us back to the first time um, you were incarcerated? Like the first day you wake up in prison, like what is your mindset? Like how do you rationalize you being there? Do you have a plan on how you're going to get out? It sounds like the first time you had, a, you had a plan of, hey, I need to do this, these things in order for me to get released. What was that mindset? And then the second time around, what was the follow-up plan of what you're going to be doing for the next uh, like seven years? Yeah, yeah. So um, I was like, I, I was arrested here and there. I, you know, I, I, like I said, I used to ride BMXs. I used to steal bikes, like do little things, you know, to get money. So I was arrested a couple of times, but I went to the juvenile facility like for one day or one night, I believe, and I got out the next day. So that really wasn't nothing. It was the nine months mm-hmm. that I served that really like affected me and, and kind of shifted my mindset. Like, wow, I'm locked up. I can't believe this. Like, it was real hard. And, you know, I got my son's mother out there, got my son out there. I'm the one that makes the bread. You know, I was missing her. So it was, it was, it was, it was a real crazy time for me emotionally. And I was weak. I was weak, man. And it, it was a hard time. But I was determined to get out because all I thought about was an FOC. I'd have messed up and took this deal. Now they can hold me for three years. I need to get out of here. I was determined to do that. So I did everything I could. I became a model inmate there. I did everything I could do. I eventually got access to the, go to the library to deliver mail, to get outside the gate. I befriended the director of the, the institution, begged him every day, like, yo, you're going you're gonna to get me released, right? You're going to let them get me out of here. You're going to recommend my release. You know what I'm saying? And like, I was on it. I went to the school. I got my GED. I made sure I did everything I had yeah. to do to get out of there. I wanted out, period. So I just to get curious, back to the so you, you worked so hard to get out of that nine-month sentence, but then once you <sighs> come out, you go right back to irony, doing your right? own thing. So yeah, man. what was that kind of, did you consciously like made the decision to, hey, I'm going to keep doing this? Or did it just kind of over a few days or weeks, you just started kind of, it was so kind of, it was so easy to do so that you just kind of went back to those old ways? Yeah, it was my life, man. I had a son. Mm-hmm. You know, I had his moms I had to take care of. I had to take care of myself. I had my family I had to take care of. My mom's, you know, on drugs, but mm-hmm. I still love her. I'm going to take mm-hmm. care of her. Mm-hmm. So I had to get that money. But at, at initially, I was like, you know, I got to change my life. Because mm-hmm. while I was there, one of my mans got murdered. When that's my first, one of my first dudes that got murdered, my man got murdered. I was actually able to get the facility to allow me to go to his funeral. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to let me at first, but I told him how close we were. And that was my dude. I got to go. They allowed me to go. So when I seen him in that casket and, and, and seen how he got murdered in the drug game, and I see my incarceration, I'm like, damn, you know, dealing drugs and being a drug dealer, two things happen. You either go to jail or you, or you, or you end up dead. And so I seen me and my man on, on, on each spectrum of that, right? And I, and I was like, man, I, I got to change. So I was determined to change. But then as I got closer and closer to my release, I started like thinking more so like I got to get out there and get that money. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? I got to get these kilos, man. I got to rise to a kilo. And I set up a plan in my mind, how I was going to do it. I stuck to that plan and I did it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I got to credit my father, even though he's never in my life. I got to credit my 
mathematical ability to think things through mathematically really for my father, my business sense for my father because he was an entrepreneur. I told you, you know, yeah. he was an entrepreneur and he was business, business oriented. So I always had a natural yeah. entrepreneurial spirit and, and business sense about me. Yeah, totally. So take us back now to the second time. So now you got the seven years. So what, like kind of, once you start serving it, what's your plan of action then? Did you have a plan or were you just kind of spending time to figure out like your next moves or just, what was that like? So the seven years and what's sad is that I, I got the seven years. I went away. First time ever being away from Newport, Rhode Island, like far out like that. I've never been that far out. You know, we've been in New York, of course, New York all the time and Philadelphia, but they brought me to Oklahoma. <laughs> I ain't never been to Oklahoma, man. And that was just so crazy to me. And then as I'm going through that, I just, all I kept saying to myself was, you got to be strong. You got to, you know, I'm 19 years old, man. I'm going to federal prison. I have no idea what this is like. I have never experienced, you know, being incarcerated in a situation like that or, or that long to even think about it. And I was, you know, I was just going through it, but I was real spiritual. So my fortitude was there. I just kept saying I had to be strong, I had to be strong. And I never stopped believing in myself. I never stopped believing that I had a gift. I never stopped believing that I knew I was here for a greater purpose than this. I just knew this is something I had to go through at that particular time and I'm going to get through it. Mm -hmm. And so that was the focus. And spirituality is what really fortified my spirit and got me through all that. But uh, I lost everybody, man, like straight up and down. My mom's on drugs, my family on drugs. Nobody's sending me money. My girl leaves me, can't see my son. They have no money to come and see me that far out because they end up taking me to uh, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. In Kentucky, man. Only thing I knew about Kentucky at that time was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about <laughs> Kentucky, man. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and they put me in a medium, a medium facility. So, you know, and I was just so far out, man. It was, it was a crazy experience. But I was determined to survive. I was determined to make it. And no matter what, that's what eventually happened. I got through it. Um, but I remember, like, working for 12 cents an hour. I remember joining, they have an industry in there called Unicor. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's, a, it's a prison industry. So I got into that. I got on the waiting list. The waiting list was a long time. Finally got into that. And you can actually build up what they have grades. So they have grade one, two, three, four. You start at grade four. You work your way up, even though numbers go down. Oh, they go up rather, yeah. So one, one is not like the highest grade. So I ended up making it to grade one. Can you explain eventually. more what it is? Yeah. The industry? Yeah, yeah what is the industry? Okay, so Unicor is, is basically the Federal Bureau of Prisons industry and how they make money. Mm -hmm. They make money by selling products that the inmates produce. produce, and they sell it to the private sector, and they sell it to the government sector. Hmm. And um, what type of products, just so our listeners have an um, idea? Okay, for instance, like desks. We also get contracts for the U.S. mail. I was doing U.S. mail. I was actually doing U.S. mail bags. Let me be specific. I was doing U.S. mail bags. We were repairing them for the um, United States Postal Service when I was doing time in, in Atlanta. So I worked inside Atlanta Penitentiary doing that. They, so that's a government contract. Mm -hmm. right? Contracted to the BOP, Federal Bureau of Prisons. We would also build stuff for the Army, for the armed forces. Jackets. Like weapons? No, not weapons. No, yeah. yeah. Like weapons. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah, I wish. Yeah. I would have been out of there. Weapons. I, I would have loved that, right? But when, you, when you're graduating levels, is it like, are you working on more sophisticated products? Or? No, no, it's not even that. It's, it's longevity, seniority. Mm -hmm. So they, but this, that's how they do it, though. So you, own, you start at 12 cents an hour when you work in the regular prison jobs, like cleaning up trash, working in the kitchen, whatever it is. When you get into the industries, that's where you make the big money. How much Quote, is that? unquote. It varies. So I was able to get to a grade one by my longevity and by there being a spot available. Mm -hmm. They only have so many grade fours, so many grade threes, so many grade twos, mm -hmm. so many grade ones. And you guys are really drawing this information out of me because I 
totally forgot all about that's it. That's interesting. Yeah, that's um, interesting. So I made it to grade one. I was making a hundred dollars a month, and that's why I lived off of a hundred dollars a month in a cell, probably is the biggest, a bathroom stall, <laughs> probably like three bathroom stalls, and then living out of a locker, mm-hmm. seven years of my life. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like you're definitely a, a hardworking dude. Uh, like you know how to hustle. You have a business sense. We often talk about uh, looking at perceived disadvantages and turning them into advantages. So when you were in prison, did you find yourself like learning more about yourself like, or coming up with a plan of what you wanted to do in the future? Did the prison provide you with any resources that you could have relied on to kind of teach yourself a new skill or anything like that? Absolutely. I'm going to say, but do like, I absorb things. I have a, a strong comprehension ability. And not only that, but when I, when I absorb knowledge, I'm able to, to digest it so fast to be able to actually articulate it what I just learned so fast in the instant that I learned it. Mm-hmm. And you would think that I knew it mm-hmm. for a long time. I was you know, a veteran with, a, with that skill set, that particular field of knowledge. So I, I leveraged that in a way where I wanted to become a music, a music artist, recording artist. So I started reading books about the music business. Mm. And instead of me spending money in commissary and eating you know, a little bit better than what they serve you, I would save my money and I would order books. Mm-hmm. So I would sacrifice, you know, have a little bit better food just so I could get the food for thought mm-hmm. and get that knowledge. So that was one of the things I did was really turn prison into a college. I took the advice of the judge. Mm-hmm. I turned it into college and it became like my, my self-improvement lab. How do I better myself in every way? Because there was one thing I didn't want. I didn't want to be in prison all that time and come home and be behind. I didn't want that to happen. I wanted to be up to speed. Mm-hmm. If not, at least, well, I really be, I wanted to be ahead. But at least if I'm not ahead, I'm at least up to speed. Mm-hmm. So I set out a plan to build a record label when I came home. I started getting books from the Interlibrary Exchange on how to write a business plan. And I actually, in pencil, on paper, no typewriters, I wrote out an entire business plan, A to Z, for my first record label. So when I came home, I could start it. Then I sat in, in the law library and I typed it all up. I never knew how to type. I took mm-hmm. typing classes in prison. I took architectural architecture and architectural drawing in prison. So I did actually apply myself and get different skills. But the greatest thing I think I got was my discipline of sitting in my cell majority of my time and studying and reading books. And I didn't, I didn't watch TV a lot. I didn't listen to the radio a lot. And a lot of times, people that I would befriend would actually come to my cell all the time and like bang on the cell and try to get me, yo, you're going to come out come out to the rec yard? You're going to come watch the yeah. show with us and this and that? And I'd be like, nah, I'm studying. I got to study. And I would like, I turned it into my school, man. I turned it into my college. I turned it into my university. And I would study everything I could get my hands on from geometry to mathematics to science to English. I would read the, read the um, I took, a, I took a cue from Malcolm X. I read his, um, his biography early on when I was in the juvenile facility. And, you know, I, he mastered the, the, the dictionary. I did the same thing. I love a dictionary, my G. The dictionary is one of my favorite books. And in prison, I would go to the law library and get the biggest dictionary they had, take it back to my cell, just go through. And every day I would learn a new word. And I would learn a new word to put in my vocabulary. Then I would use it in a rhyme form. Because I was writing rhymes this whole time, yeah. right? Seven years I wrote rhymes. Mm-hmm. The whole time I was there. So I would, I would you know, get these new words. And this is just what I did, man. Just really turned it into a workshop of self-improvement on every level. From in the gym, from how I ate, because I didn't want to sit in there like eating 
eating and eating eating honey buns and and you know nachos and and chips for all those years and come out looking crazy. Yeah. yeah. Too yeah. many dudes I've seen in there would you know suffering from diabetes, dying in prison, you know having heart attacks. They putting plastic bags around their body like trash bags so they can sweat off the pounds. You know running the track because they they so big. I didn't want none of that. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, yo, I got to preserve myself. You know what I mean? I was like your boy Alpo and paid in full. He was, he was played by, Cam, by Cameron, but then he called him Alpo and, and, right. and, Rico. and paid in full. They called him Rico. Yeah. And uh, he, when, he, when he got called by the feds at the end, he said, yo, he said, um, yo, I ain't snitching on nobody in Harlem. I'll, snitch, I'll give you anybody <laughs> else. I ain't snitching on nobody in Harlem because when I'm done with this time, I'm going back and I'm going to be king again. Yeah. Yep. You know, so, something to that effect, right? Yeah. So, you know, and I just applaud, the, I applaud, the, you know, the tenacity, man. You know what I mean? You about to go do life and, you know, you making sure that you come home again. Yeah. And um, anyway, so that was my thoughts. Like, mm-hmm. I'm coming home again. Yeah. And I'm going to come back 100% better. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's what happened. Yeah. I came back 100% better, but I, I utilized all that in the wrong way. Yeah. Before talking about that part of it, you know, you were investing a lot in books. Was this when you, you talked a little bit about magazines and how that, kind of influence what you were going to be doing next? Well, actually, that, that came later on. Oh, that, that came part, later that on. That part of my story. Okay. And the answer the question about the recidivism. Yeah. So um, you want to speak to that? Well, I, I was just curious because I know, it, like you mentioned, with, when you were 19, you came out, you wanted to, to try to do something different. And then because you had to support your family, you wanted to put bread on the table and you kind of turned to drugs because that's like, that's one of the primary ways that you knew how to make money. So that kind of led you back to jail, but can you talk a little bit about recidivism and um, kind of what's your view on it and how did you, how did you uh, battle with it? Yeah, I, I, dealt with, I dealt heavily with recidivism because psychologically, you know, I, I had been selling drugs and been in the streets and living a criminal lifestyle since I was 13 years old. So I, I was definitely caught in a psychological cell, you know, caught in that psychological cycle of repeating the same thing over and over and over and again. And I didn't really expect a different result. So clinically, I wasn't insane. I just needed to get money. <laughs> You know what I mean? Period. Yeah. I needed to get bread. I needed to get dough. And when I came home, man, I had this thing about me, man. Like all my life, even since I was young, not really since I was young, but when I started realizing my gift and my, my, my ability to do whatever I wanted to do in my mind, like whatever I put my mind to, I got the self, my self-confidence was just so crazy. I always had a high self-esteem. And that built from me being younger and always being able to accomplish whatever I thought about. So I was never arrogant with it. Because I always stayed to myself and was just determined about how I needed to do things for me. And if I needed to take care of my son and raise him, you know, put clothes on, on, on his back, shoes on his feet, food in his mouth. I took care of him and his moms. Um, and I had him when I was 16 years old, too, you know. So I was, always, you know, I already took fatherhood serious at 16. So that shows you how advanced my mom was, you know what I'm saying, and ahead of my time I was. So when I came home, I was, I think, 20, 25. Came home at 25. I'm hungry. But I'm mad at the world. And up to that point, I had never drank alcohol. I never did drugs. I never done drugs in my life. Mm-hmm. I had never drank alcohol in my life up to that point. Because, my, again, my mother was raised as a nun, as I told you. Was raised by nuns, rather. So she was very, you know, she never drank, never did anything. So when she turned to drugs, it was just crazy. Why would she go to drugs as an escape, her pain? So I was never into drugs. I was never into drinking, none of that. And that's what I think also allowed me to excel. Because I, my mom was always clear and mm-hmm. sharp. Mm-hmm. And I had that strong comprehension ability. So if I, if I learned something, I picked something up. I knew how to repeat it just by watching. I could watch you do something and then repeat it. And then if you tell me something or teach me something, I knew how to act on it and I would recall it, right? 
So, um, but I wouldn't remember, I wouldn't realize all these gifts and these talents and skill sets that I had naturally. I would just apply them. Mm-hmm. I was just like oblivious to them and applying them. But when I got in prison, I got so spiritual, all of this stuff started coming to me. I started realizing all this, saying, yo, I see what it is. So I was like more empowered mm-hmm. with my confidence, more empowered with my high self-esteem. And I just, you know, I didn't care what it was. I just wanted to get out, get money, and everybody that wronged me and everybody that wasn't there for me, show and prove, I'm still here, baby. Mm-hmm. So, so you're 25, what. you come back. 25, I come back. Yo, man. So what What do you do? Yo, so, I, I, so you know I was going to start the record label, right? Right, right. So you were the I best. I start the record label, Supreme Records. Uh, first, I was on home confinement. I was staying with my peoples and back in Newport. I got released there. My mother's life was in shambles. I went to see her. She was living in the same projects where I, where I got released to. My sister-in-law went and see my mom's and just, it was crazy, man. When I say crazy, my mom's situation was like, if I wasn't so hard in my prison, it would have brought tears in my eyes. I can't even say it brought tears in my eyes, but I felt the pain. I had to help her. So I was on home confinement for about four months. I got off. The night that I got off, I was on probation too, and I'm even not supposed to leave the state. I shoot to New York City, perform my first show, Meet Molly Mall, Supreme Record Showcase, straight out of prison, man. Wow. Supreme Record Showcase at one of the illest clubs in New York City. What was the name of that club, man? It's club Speed. Anybody from New York that knows hip-hop back in them times, and we talking 1998, you know what I'm saying? Club Speed was, was the spot to be, and I met Molly Mall. That's just crazy within itself. Hey. That's just crazy within itself, me and Molly Mall, man. Listening to his records, loving his records. Me and Molly Mall performing at my own showcase, my own record label. You know how empowering that is? Yeah. For me, just coming you set home. You your mind to it, and prison, you got it. I had a doing just seven years. No money in my pocket, by, by the way, because no one gave me nothing. I was broke, G. But you know what? You I was made it stay broke. I was determined to get that money again. I fell right back into selling drugs. Went to my mom's crib, cleaned everything out, got a wall-to-wall carpeting, crib, laced out. I started living with her, made my room. My room look like Egypt. When the feds knocked me off again, they was like, yo. We walked into my probation. I was like, yo. We walked into your room. Shit looked like something out of Egypt. Pardon my language. But he was like, yo, I walked in your room, man. It looked like something straight out of Egypt. I'm, I had King Tut. I had gold everywhere. Like, it was crazy. Like, gold paint. Like, it was crazy. But yeah, it, yo, man, listen. I got back in the game. I found another connect out in New York City. I'm back selling kilos. It was short-lived, though. You know what I mean? My triumphant return. I came back to get my, you know, get my, my son's mother back. Like, you know, because she had, you know, started dealing with other dudes and all that. And, you know. I was like, I wanted my family back, my son, my, my girl, and I was like, like bitter. So I started drinking heavily, and, and, like, and that's where my depression went, and, and the drinking. And I never drank before, right? So you imagine somebody never drank before, mm-hmm. like trying to hang with the big boys who drink all the time and smoke yeah. weed all the time. I'm like, oh, I can handle that. Let me see that. Yeah. And I'm drinking, you know, Ben and, and, you know, more liquor and all that. And at the time, they had that crazy um Cisco, we called it the crack juice, sipping on that and just, like, Really not caring, but it was all pain. It was all wanting to release that that pain because I couldn't release it through just regular. Because my heart was still, my mind was still. I have, I became desensitized to my emotions, and still to this day that affects me. Yeah, emotionally, I'm not, I'm not in, like it's crazy. Like I've never had friends, I've never been close to people. So we'll get into that later. How me coming into tech and all that stuff changed that whole dynamic, and it's it, like it's crazy. Yeah. So I never had friends. I never trusted anybody. And I never let down my guard. And again, I was desensitized to emotions. So, you know, I just focused on getting money. What was your relationship like with your son and like your and the son's mom when you got back? I seen my son, man, broke down, man. My son was nine years old, 10 years old, Jay. 
You know what I mean? I left him when he was three, Jay. And um, just hugging him, man. You know, holding him and like just letting him know, you know, Pops is back. You know, I'm going to do right by you. I was never no type of Debbie type dad type dude. Never in my life. I don't get down like that. Because I know my Pops wasn't there for me. And I want to repeat that cycle. Not only that, I'm just an honorable dude when it comes to like, that type of thing. Like, I do my thing. We all do our things. I'm not a perfect dude. But there's a certain things I don't do. And not being a father to my son would never do that. Whole time I was in prison, I would write him letters. He'd be three, he'd be four. I'd send home letters. Everything I thought about every day writing my son. Send letters home to him and his moms. Like, yo, read these to my son when he gets old enough. Whatever, whatever. Because I hardly ever seen her. She wasn't really able to bring my son to come see me. Because she was young. She was a teenager herself. You know, I was two years older than her. You know what I mean? So, um, I was 16. She was 14 when she had my child, man. You know what I'm saying? So, and I was always more mature and I always, I always guided her. So, when I left her, she was like 17 years old. And, um, you know, she got caught up in the world, which is, you know, expected without someone like me to guide her and lead her. She was always a good woman, man. You know what I'm saying? And all that. But um, I came home. You know, she had a new boyfriend and all that. And I knew the kid. And, you know, I let him know, like, yo, I'm back from my family, man. Straight up. I told him right to his face. Like, yo, I'm back from my fam. It is what it is. And that's just how it is in the hood. Like, you know, we have a, a, this crazy ill way of living in the hood, man, that people outside the hood could never understand and never will understand. And, you know, plus being African-American and, you know, having that ego and that, and that, that machismo, if you will, and just having that, you know, that type of, not really aggressive energy, but just having that, you know, I'm the man type energy. You know what I'm saying? So I came home, like I told you how I came home. I came home like my triumph and return. I'm back. I'm going to get this money. I'm going to show you what time it is. And I did all that. And I told him to his face, like, I'm here for my fam. Unfortunately, things didn't work out, man. And that, that broke my heart even more. So I fell right back into recidivism, selling drugs. And I went back to prison eight, 19 months later. I was back in federal prison for two more, two and a half more years. But, you know. That's insane. Yeah. So take us to uh, kind of your time. So recidivism is kind of, it sounds like you've, you've served time, you learned your lessons, then you come out and you try to make a change and then it's very hard to break the pattern. So t- take us to the moment when you actually kind of had a realization or what led you to re- having that kind of realization of how you could break out of the matrix and kind of break the pattern that kept bringing you back to jail. Yes. So again, you know, recidivism was all psychological. And there's a good term for what people who serve large amounts of prison time go through and how it changes them psychologically and changes their psychology. And what's ill about that is that it's, I suffered from post-incarceration syndrome. And it's sort of like, you know, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. PTSD, right? But it's, it, it involves being incarcerated or confined to an artificial environment for so long where, like I told you, I had to become desensitized and things of that nature emotionally. Spirituality is what really kept me, kept me really going. It was spirituality more than anything. So that's see why I got the name Divine and how that how I manifested into that. But uh, the recidivism, I kept dealing with it, kept dealing with it. And even though I wanted to change, man, it always seemed like no matter what, I would always fall back into that pattern, the same situation, the same conditions, the same circumstances, not having money, not being able to get a job, not feeling like I'm smart enough in, in, in the sense of formally, like formally smart enough to go get a job where people are going to look at me like, oh, he's qualified. I knew I wasn't qualified. I never had a job in my life. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't feel confident enough to go get that application and I got to check off the box that I, I, have, a, I have a felony. You know, that, that, I always dreaded that. Like, be real with you. Like, when I came home trying to find a job, I always dreaded filling out that box and I never really understood, like, how I felt to later on. Like, now I can, like, articulate it, like, and really understand, like, damn, man, I was really, like, I was ashamed. I, was, I wasn't confident. I was confident in the streets. You know what I'm saying? I was confident, you know, 
having my guns and doing what I do in the streets, no problem. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But going to get that job and facing that employer, that was like, I didn't want to do that. Can you talk about some of the issues that people with felonies face when they're trying to get a job? Some of the issues? Yeah, like if you have a felony on your record. Like, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, most times, you know, they say don't discriminate against you if you just tell the truth and say what you were if convicted for and all that. But for the most part, my experience, they always There's stigma. are biased. Yeah, they yeah. always are biased against you. You know, and they, and they always don't give you the job. Why are they going to get a black guy the job when they got someone qualified that's a white guy? You know what I'm saying? Or whatever. Or whoever. But not the black guy with the, with the record. Not the black guy that's a criminal. Not the black guy that got the felony for gun possession and drugs. And I actually had, and that's what it was on my record, like guns and guns and drugs. So Yeah, so take us back to the second time when you were incarcerated. I think you were telling us and during the pre-chat that something changed about that time, right? You started reading more about entrepreneur magazines or what was that experience like? And Or was that even the point where you had that realization? What Arthur mentioned about breaking out of the matrix or this pattern? All right, so yeah, so that was about five years ago now that um, I got incarcerated again for selling drugs, and I was really disappointed in myself, to be honest with you, because at this point in my life, I was like, yo, I'm too smart, too intelligent, and I have too many skills. I knew that about myself, and I, and I, believed, it my, I believed in myself that much that I knew I could do something else besides keep selling drugs, keep going to prison, and I was like more so like embarrassed with myself, be honest with you. I'm like, yo, come on, man. So I got real hard on myself. I said, you know what? I just came to a point where I was 100% dissatisfied. Until there's 100% dissatisfaction, no change occurs. And I was 100% dissatisfied. And I said, you know what? It's time to change my life, man. I put all this effort into selling drugs, made all this money. Feds just took a quarter million dollars from me. I wasn't happy about it. Lost my studio, about a $50,000 studio. Lost everything for, for music. And I said, you know what, man? It's time to change. And I said, I'm going to focus on entrepreneurship. I love the hustle. I love the grind. Like, I Mitch, love it. Money making Mitch. See what I'm saying? See, I'm bringing right back. I was about to hit him with that one. I'm like, paid him full. I love the hustle. I love the grind, man. And honestly, I realized that's what gives me that's what gives me that that spark. That's what gives me that purpose. And so I knew that about myself. So that was one piece of the puzzle. Then I started reading Entrepreneur magazine. And yo, I got to salute Entrepreneur for real because that magazine inspired me so much. My man had all of them joints, old joints, right? He had a whole bunch, like, stacks. I was getting them, yo, give me that one, give me that one, give me that one. Reading through them, pulling out paper. Like, everything I would do when I did my record label, when I was mm -hmm. incarcerated for the first seven years, I did the same thing, so I started making files. Everything I wanted to do entrepreneurially. Different companies, drawing out, everything I wanted to do. So, Entrepreneur was big, Inc. Magazine, Black Enterprise, and then I had a little bit of money left in the streets, enough to sustain me for the one year that I was about to do. And I was like, yo, buy me this book, buy me that book, buy me this book. Think and Grow Rich, Richest Man in Babylon. Amazing books. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Got the whole New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? So I got all those books sent in to me and just started studying them, reading them. I said, yo, if I could just focus and put my mind to this right here, I knew I can accomplish I already knew I could do it. I just had to take that time and put my mind into it, but I wasn't doing that. I was using my gift and my talents to be able to Again, get whatever I want or make whatever I want in my mind to manifest as I've done all my life. And I was misusing my gift because at this point, I'm more responsible now. As a kid, it's different. Even though I, I had to face the penalties and the repercussions of my ways and actions, at this point, I'm an adult. But guess what? I still suffered psychologically and I knew I had to break out of it. So 
I set my mind to do it. I started planting these new seeds and they would eventually grow. So I was looking at entrepreneur and I was seeing how all these people started these businesses, simple ideas, and got millions of dollars. But guess what? They, none of them look like me. And I took, I took note of that yep. because I went through that when I came home from my record label. I tried to go do, good, you know, good, good, do, do the good route, go business plan, go to the bank, put a tie on. I'm going to get <laughs> funded. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. It ain't happening for me. No character, no credit, no collateral. It ain't going down. I learned it the hard way. I, but I believed that if I did that the right way, I could do it. But it, did, it didn't happen. I believe that if I did the right way, it would happen. It didn't. So I was discouraged. That's another story. So when I seen all these ideas in, in, this, in this entrepreneur magazine, I really didn't tie it to technology. I really wasn't like catching it like from an objective perspective. Maybe subjective, they said, okay, tech, tech, this, tech, that. I really didn't catch it. But I knew the entrepreneurial spirit, and I seen that. I identified that easy, right? So, okay, I didn't know just how much grind and hustle it takes to build a company. I still didn't reach that realization. I thought that I hustled drugs. I could, I could build a company. thought it was that simple. So I came across this other magazine called The Weekend. Not The Weekend. It was The Week. I'm sorry, The Week. It was called The Week. I'm reading it, and they have different, and how this magazine works, they have different news articles from all different sources throughout the world, and they have different sections, business, entertainment, whatever, whatever. So I got to this business section, and it was a small article that was pulled from the New York Times, and I read it, and it had this guy, like I think he had a blue shirt on with a black leather jacket, I think, and it said, Something about hip hop and billionaire and venture capital. So I was like, hold on. I read the article. It was about Ben Horowitz. And we all know who Ben Horowitz is. Well, let's for listeners who may not know who Ben Horowitz is, who may not even know what venture capital is. Like what is it? Okay, yeah. So that's good. Thank you for that, that, that question. So Ben Horowitz is, is a um is a Silicon Valley tech venture capitalist. He co founded one of the number one or the number one venture capital firms in the country, if not the world, Andreessen Horowitz, with his partner, Mark Andreessen. A venture capitalist is somebody who actually puts money into a company or a venture or backs a venture by investing money into it. Thus, you have the word capital, money, finance, and you have the word venture, company, startup, or venture. So I had always known what the word venture capitalist meant. I knew it meant somebody that put money into companies, right? But still, remember, it was still not really crystal clear. I heard the term before when I did some of my studies in, in business and read books. But my thing, what really intrigued me about Ben or the article was that this was a Jewish guy in his, I think, early 40s, maybe at the time, or maybe mid-40s in Silicon Valley, because I heard that term before. I knew that was something. I just know exactly what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a billionaire, and he loves hip-hop. To me, it just cla- it didn't, it didn't seem right. It's like mixing oil with water. It just don't, it didn't, it didn't seem right. I, I thought it was a gimmick. I thought it was a publicity stunt, honestly. But I said, you know what? His favorite artist is Rakim. And everybody said, I sound like Rakim on music, this and that. So what if I could reach out to this guy and he invests in my music company? If I could convince him. Because then I called home. I was like, yo, pull me up everything you can find out on this guy, Ben Horowitz. Go to Wikipedia, whatever you got to do. Find out everything you can and send it to me. (laughs) So I started reading more about him because I was intrigued by this guy. I wanted to know more about him. I learned he was a Gemini like myself. That stuck out to me because I'm very into, very heavy into um, spirituality and, and astrology and all that. Then what really stuck out to me was that he was philanthropic. That's what really made me say, if I could appeal to this guy, maybe he would 
Take a shot See, at me. Yeah, take a shot with me, right? Take you know, bet on me. Yeah. Maybe he would. And that's exactly how I'm thinking. And I actually got a person that was in a cell with me who can bear witness to everything I'm telling you, exactly what I said before it all happened. And you know what's amazing? So you said you read the book Think and Grow Rich. I don't know if uh, like our listeners have checked it out. It's an amazing book. But one of the main premises is that if you put your mind to something, you visualize it, it will become true because you have to like you set up a plan, but as long as you have the thoughts, the right thoughts, it will eventually become true. And it's amazing that after finding out of Ben, you visualize it in your head, right? And then you imagine that you felt like it was real. And then a couple of years later, it turns out to be reality. I'm curious to hear like kind of like from oh, your yeah. perspective, like what um kind of you, you mentioned that you were telling what were you telling your cellmate when about this plan okay yeah so that you, you just gave me a lot to think about and mm-hmm. i want to address everything you just said mm-hmm. first let's go back to think and grow rich yeah throughout my prison time do you know how many times that book <laughs> came across my desk came across my ability to just grab it and read it i never did because at that time my mind wasn't focused on like that type of content at the time mm-hmm. i was more spiritual and just focus on the music business, mm-hmm. right? And it never just dawned on me, say, think, grow, rich. Yep. So it never, I always seen it. It always came in my pathway. So the book was trying to come to me. Yeah. Like all things in my life have always came to me. I didn't have to go to them. And books specifically, because I love reading. That's one of my greatest, I love reading. So anyway, so I said, you know what? It's time to get Think and Grow Rich. Now I got the time, I'm going to focus on entrepreneurship. This is my time. To, mm-hmm. This is what I'm going to focus is going to be. Send me Think and Grow Rich. Because I already knew it was a special book. I don't know how I knew that, but I knew it was. And I was able to read that book. And not only was I ecstatic as I read it, and just got more inspired and more empowered and more confidence because I had been utilizing the very process of achieving whatever you put your mind to all of my life, but never understood it in an organized way. Or or in a... Conscious way. In a conscious way where it was, you know, Explain to you as a, as mm-hmm. a process, right? So now it becomes objective. Mm-hmm. It's a system you could follow. It's a system. But yeah. I've been using that system all my life. Yep. And we all have that system yep. naturally. So I want to go back to what you, what you were saying. If you can conceive it, if you can conceive it, if you conceive it, if you believe it, you can achieve it. That's the principles, right? Napoleon Hill's principles. Think and go rich. Anyway, I got the book, I read it, and I had always been practicing this anyway. So to me, it was more like, I felt like I was confirmed. Yeah. Like, okay, dad, I, I, like, it's, it's proven. I, I, I knew this. I knew this already. I've been doing this all my life. But I was doing it the wrong way in the wrong way. The wrong way in the You're wrong field. You're applying your energy to the wrong things. The wrong things, exactly. So during that whole year I spent in prison, probably one of my most productive years in an entrepreneurial way than I ever spent in my life, even when I did my seven years. I was just focused on music. Music was my thing. It wasn't really so much entrepreneurship. It was just music, industry. Even though it was entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. it was just, I didn't look at it that way. Now I'm using the terms, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm using the term entrepreneurship. I want to be a serial entrepreneur. I am interested in connecting with this venture capitalist who's from Silicon Valley, who's a billionaire. So, you know, I started putting all that together. So these words are now coming to the forefront You're of my internalizing consciousness. internalizing it. Exactly, exactly. Like I always do. So then- my man's sitting there watching me. I'm just going over these. I'm ripping things out of an entrepreneur. I'm ripping them out of ink. <laughs> I'm ripping pages out of Black Enterprise. I'm studying just like I did before. And I'm, 
I got these manila envelopes from commissary and I'm putting everything in categories and organizing all my information and knowledge. I'm like, I got to do this, man. This is it, man. I'm, 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 I'm tired of this. Unfortunately, things happen. But here's, here's the beauty of it all. I said, I'm going to meet this guy. And so I started visualizing flying out to California to this place called Silicon Valley, standing in front of this Andreessen, Hor- Andreessen Horowitz office and waiting for him to come out. And then at the time, I didn't know the word pitch. I just said, I'm going to build with him. I'm going to connect with him. And I'm going to ask him to invest in my music company. That was all my thoughts in prison. I get out. I didn't reach out to Ben until two years after. But let me tell you what happened in the, in the midst of that two years. I went back to selling drugs. I went back to selling drugs. I had opportunity because I was so good at what I did. And I made people a lot of money. And I made myself a lot of money. That bid defense took a quarter million from me. I was given opportunity with no money down to, to get back in the, in the drug game. And so I took a flight to California. I didn't know that California would play a greater role in my life a few years later. Wow. And so after you started selling drugs again, kind of what led you to, you know, your next steps to actually even meeting Ben Horace? So that's, that's called like the breakthrough, right? Okay. So here's what happened. I went back to selling drugs and I didn't feel right. I didn't feel right. I felt like I was letting myself down. I felt like I wasn't being all I know that I am. And I just knew it wasn't right. And at that time, that's when I started consciously working to break the psychological cycle of feeling I have to rely on drugs to survive or feeling like criminality is the only way for me to succeed. And I set out. I took all my drug money. I said, you know what? I'm going to get my music done. I'm going to push this music out. I'm going to do a Kickstarter. So I read about a dude who was successful with Kickstarter with his music, with a lot of music at that time. Wasn't successful on Kickstarter. I said, I'm going to raise 7K. So put my Kickstarter up. I used all my drug money to get my album ready, get it tight. It was really more than I thought it was going to take to do. I got all my old material that I had written like about nine years prior. Never put out because I was incarcerated, but I knew it was good material. And I put together an album called Get A Rhyming, put it on Kickstarter. And then I got an opportunity to perform in Hollywood with Rakim, which anybody who doesn't know who Rakim is, he's probably one of the greatest rappers that ever lived, if not the greatest. Not probably is he is one of the greatest rappers that ever lived, if not the greatest. And your favorite rapper, favorite rapper, <laughs> that's their favorite rapper. Fact. So I did a show with Rakim, and I had known Rakim from way back. We had crossed paths before and did business together. So Rakim was my man. I got the show in, in, in Hollywood, performed, killed it. First time I ever, ever performed with such a huge crowd. And we took pictures and all this stuff together. So I went back to the East Coast trying to focus on how could I build my audience to pledge for my Kickstarter to, to get the, raise the 7K. And that's when I'm sitting on my computer. I look up at the TV one late night and um, there's a show that's on. It was on VH1. It was the documentary of Tannin of America by Steve Stout. I never read the book. I came across that book too while incarcerated, never read it. So I look up and I see this white guy come on the screen, didn't recognize him, but then I'd seen a name that I did recognize, Ben Horowitz. I was like, yo, oh, that's that guy Ben Horowitz I read about two years ago while in prison. I said, wow, he really is, he really is. Oh, he really isn't hip hop like that. Again, man, my choice, I didn't really believe that he really loved hip hop. I thought it was a ploy. I thought it was a uh, publicity stunt, so forth and so on. So I, when I seen that, I was like, I got a little bit more intrigued and, and, and curious. Like, oh, he really is in the hip hop. Because I know, I know who Steve Stout is. I don't study the man, but I knew who he was from Nas's career and just being in the music industry. Mostly from Puffy, you know, breaking his arm by smashing a champagne bottle over it. <laughs> Puffy's known to get a little crazy. 
you know, that's why they call him Puffy. He puffs up and gets mad. <laughs> well, he, you know, when he gets mad, he puffs up. Um, but anyway, so they, they relate that back to the Puff the Magic Dragon. <laughs> funny, yeah, funny. But um, I was like, yo, so I, I went to bed, didn't think nothing of it. Went to bed, got up the next morning, put my computer on. So in my, in my news feed, Ben Horowitz came up again because he had just released his um, book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. So I was like, yo, and I've always wanted to take signs and symbols and always know that my life has always been like that. I've always seen things, like I told you earlier, like without even thinking, I always felt things and I, and I move more of my intuition than I do a thought process because thought process actually slows you down. Intuition and feeling speeds you up. You're able to move much faster by feeling things and just knowing them. And I always have that great intuition, which is quick and ready insight. And I've always used it all my life. So when I saw them two signs of Ben Horowitz and thought back to that seed that I had planted two years prior, mm-hmm. that now I started watering in that very instant. I went in, I yahooed him, searched him, boom, he pops up. I see all kinds of links. I see he has a blog. Then I see him with Nas. I see him with Mark Zuckerberg. I'm like, oh, man, Nas beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> but then I said with a relief that, oh, well, it's, at least it's Nas. I couldn't be mad at that. That's real. Right, so I, I accepted what it was. But that didn't deter me. I said, you know what? We're still going to move forward with this. So I went to check out his blog, and the latest blog he had was Legend of the Blind MC. And it answered all the questions I had about, is Ben Horowitz really genuine about his love for hip-hop? Mm-hmm. And is it really authentic? And that blog post is about his best friend who is blind who loved hip-hop, right? Actually, it is. And it actually, it actually gives you a brief glimpse into the lifetime of Ben Horowitz as a rapper. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't know Ben actually used to rap. Yes, really rap for the audience that think I might be joking. <laughs> um, his his hip-hop name was TikTok. <laughs> and the name of the, ironically, the name of the group that he was in with two of his best friends that he grew up with was the Blind Deaf Crew. A play on the word deaf, D-E-F, like yep, Def Jam. Like Def Jam. And it wasn't a play on the word blind because his friend was actually blind. It was an accident. His friend became blinded. Um, I suggest anybody goes read, read this on Ben's blog, Legend of the Blind MC. Um, he was blinded, and actually Ben was going to um, Columbia University in New York City at the time, and um, he would always listen to uh, the radio station, WBLS and all that, and he would actually record. He loved hip-hop, so he would actually record and make, make tapes of all the shows, and he would send them home to his friend. Right, his friend's name is Seth. He was sending home to Seth, and because Seth was contemplating suicide, of course I could imagine that type of predicament. I probably would feel the same way. And his friend was depressed. So the great thing about the tapes that he was sending him in hip hop was that Seth started to become more confident and it was coming out of a state of depression. Then they created the group. When Ben comes back to to, to California after graduating, they create this group and they created you know the Blind Dev Crew. Ben is TikTok. It was nuts. And they got the blind MC with Seth. And then his other friend was, uh, I forgot his, forgot his name, the name they called him. But um, his other friend was a DJ. It, it, it was crazy. And I was so moved by that, I automatically was compelled to reach out to Ben. I didn't even think about it. I said, I got to reach out to him. But I read a couple other blogs after that of his, and I was more impressed with the man he was, Ben was. I was really impressed with him when I learned that he was giving all the proceeds of his book away to women that were in a struggle that were, you know, dealing with um. Uh, sex trafficking and things that all them struggles that women go through internationally and things of that nature. I was just so impressed with that. I was like, yo, this man is, is something with this guy. To be that compassionate, to re- even, you know, do that. Yeah, he was a billionaire. Okay, so what? He's still doing that. You don't have, he doesn't have to do anything. 
So I was impressed by that, and I was compelled to reach out to him. So what, how'd you reach out to him? Great question. I went to Twitter. Twitter? Twitter. Where it all started. It's Twitter's where it all started <laughs> for me and Ben Horowitz. You sent him a DM? Nah, he wasn't following me they at the time. They didn't have DMs back then. Yeah, well, no, they had DMs, but they had to follow you. Right. Oh, okay. It was restricted. So what I did was I searched his name. It popped up. But I, I was also aware that there were a lot of fake accounts of people that were celebrities in their, in their, in their own rights or their own field. So I didn't, wasn't sure it was him. So I hit him and I said, at Ben Horowitz, I said, uh, I just read the Legend of the Blind MC article and I would have never known. He replied to me. He said, how would you have known? Like, how would you have known? Like, how would you have known? I said, yeah. I said, yeah, well, if I would have known, the next thing I would have been doing was asking you for a job because I would have been able to, you know, foresee things. Yeah. Right? I would have been able to know. So when that happened, I said, yeah. I said, and I basically told him, I said, yeah, I just came home. I read about you while incarcerated. And he said, well, yeah, welcome home. Awesome. He said, welcome <laughs> home. Like, real genuinely, he said, welcome home. And then I shot him a picture of me and Rakim. And he was like, oh, that's great. Or oh, that, that's, uh, yeah, he said, that's great or something like that. The fourth letter and the 18th letter. Because Rakim's known as the 18th letter. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, yo. So back and we're going back and forth for like almost like an hour with tweets. It's like for an hour. Yeah. Me exchanging these tweets back and forth. He don't know who I am. I know who he is. He has no idea who I am. So then I said, yo, will you follow me so I can direct message you private and private? That was it, man. That was the, that was the, the connection of me and Ben. When I got into the, into the private message, I basically, because, you know, you can only write so many characters even in private messages. So I wrote about 10 private messages as telling them my own story <laughs> of how I read about them, who I am, about my mother on crack. I sold drugs all my life. And I said, Joe, I initially was going to ask you to invest in my music company. I said, but, Joe, now that I really have this opportunity, yo, will you mentor me? Will you Amazing. teach me what you know to get billions? Will you teach me what you know, man, so I can leave crime life behind me, man? I really just pleaded with him, mm-hmm. like, and sincerely just, yo, because I wanted so bad to get out of it, man. Mm-hmm. As I told you, I put the, the Kickstarter, but I wanted to get out of it. And I said, yo, yeah, I do music. My music's on Kickstarter. And, um... I'm like, yo, you just mentor me, man. Please, like, basically, will you mentor me? Give me an opportunity. That's all I need. So he didn't respond back, right back to me. It was probably like 20, no, probably like an hour later. He comes back and responds to me. He says two things to me. I wrote him like probably like 100 things. <laughs> he comes at me with two things at the end of all that. He said, I juice up your Kickstarter. Here's my email. Email me if you have any questions. Amazing. Done. Crazy. That alone right there. Yeah. Because I knew who he was. Remember, course, I knew who yeah. he was. Yeah. I was like, yo, for him to just say that to me alone was like, I'm like, wow. And I'm it, like, am I reading this right? And it also says a lot about your maturity up to that point, too, because like a lot of people in that opportunity might have just been like still going for the, you know, just the quick investment thing. But you saw something more important, which was the mentorship, which was the, you know, having somebody that can guide you through this next phase. Great, great, great insight, because all my life has been about knowledge. And we'll get into how I homage to knowledge and yeah. what it means to me and the process of me acquiring knowledge yeah. and yeah. building off knowledge. Yeah. So you juiced up your Kickstarter. Um, so he juiced up my Kickstarter. So I immediately run to the Kickstarter, go to Kickstarter, see what he gave me. I'm like, yo, what did he put on it? I'm like, I was really surprised and shocked, honestly. I didn't care what he put on it. If he put a dollar on it, I would have been happy just simply because he did it. Yeah. So I go to my Kickstarter. I see what he gave me. I was like, okay, that's cool. But you know what? It's not even about the amount. It's about the love he showed me. That's genuine. That's mm-hmm. real. 
So I said, you know what? I was so inspired. I said, I'm going to write a song about this dude. I'm going to write a song about this dude, man. Because that's how inspired I was. Just by that small gesture, that kind gesture, I was just so, so moved by it. I'm like, yo, I got 500. Let me just switch out the 500 that he just gave me. You know what I'm saying? And let me go do something with that. You feel what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Do you remember what the song, uh, how it went or what, what you said in the song? Yeah, I do. So I immediately reached out to my man in Brooklyn, hit him up like, yo, I need a beat. Hit me with a beat. And actually the dude that gave me the beat is actually the original author or original composer or producer of the beat, Magic Stick. Oh, yeah. Saying Little Kim. Yeah. That's my man right there. What's up? So he gave me the beat. I researched Ben. I went through every article I could find on him. I pulled information from everywhere. And then I wrote the record. I wrote the rhyme from a perspective of Ben, from a perspective of myself, and tied it into my lifestyle selling drugs and him being a, a VC, a entrepreneur, and selling his company, Opsware, which being Loud Cloud, and sold it to Hewlett Packard. And I mixed it all in one, and it became venture capitalist subtitle like Ben Horowitz. I finished it. I got a cover of Mina's face on it with a billion-dollar bill on the back. And you know, I use I use the font from I use the the font from the dollar bill font that's on the dollar bill as the title venture capitalist. The S was a dollar sign. You know what I mean? Like Ben Horowitz. And I sent it to him. Not twenty four hours later, I think I said a born later, whatever. And I only recorded a rough, actually. It wasn't even the final song, but it was raw. And I loved it. I sent it to him, sent him the cover, emailed it to him. Remember, I never asked him a question. It took me almost three years to ask Ben a question based off what he told me to first do with his email. But I use his email address for other things just to show my love and send him that, that track. I wake up the next morning and my cell phone is like mad emails in my cell phone. So I go to my cell phone, I'm going through all my messages. I'm deleting, I'm deleting them. Then I come across a few from the Kickstarter campaign. And I'm like, yo, and I see a name, Felicia Horowitz. I'm like, yo, it's, what? So I go into my joint. Yo, G, I go to my Kickstarter, man. Couldn't believe it, man. Felicia blessed me, man. Felicia was my largest pledger to my Kickstarter and really pushed it to succeed. And I think I was raising 7K and I think I was probably like a few hundred dollars short. And then just to make sure I, I got all the money in the money to uh, put the album out, Ben came back and put some more dough in himself to make sure I, I got the 7K total. Man, when I seen what Felicia did for me, this my word to the most high, G. Tears came to my high. Came to my eyes. Tears came to my eyes, and they weren't tears of, of sadness. They were like tears of joy and tears of relief. Because at the time I did the Kickstarter, I told you I was just so dissatisfied with being back to selling drugs when I really wanted to get away from it. So that just solidified, like, yo, the universe heard my pleas. Yeah. The universe was answering me back. Like, my prayers were being answered. What was in my heart, what was in my mind, all my life, even when I did all the negative things, selling crack and, you know, the criminal activity the guns and the drugs and everything I was doing, the most I heard my plea, the universe answered me back. And I knew that was, I could feel it. And it brought tears in my eyes, man. Tears came to my eyes. I was like, yo. And I just yelled at the top of my lungs, like out of joy. Like, yes, this is it. I can feel it. I know it is. This is it. Felicia Holmes is going to play a, a major role in my life. And you know what? I was right. Yeah. And so now, now Felicia and Ben have... You know, become your mentors. You know, after that, uh, you created that album and you made that song. It blew up all over the magazines and took off and you you broke into tech. And we touched a little bit about it in the intro. 
But how are you now leveraging your platform to provide, you know, the things that you're focused on, like with, when it comes to financial access and inclusion to the financially excluded? Yeah. And why did you choose to focus on that? Yeah. So, so to fast forward, in short, I learned from Ben that Felicia loved the song. I learned from Ben that he had just played it for Nas on his way to South by Southwest. And I also uh, learned that Felicia was my biggest fan. And I was like so moved by all that. So what happens is that I had an opportunity to meet Ben in New York at an event he was doing with the Fat Startup. And I met him there. He basically asked me to come out and I told him I was gonna I was invited out. Let's connect. He wanted to connect. I wanted to connect. Someone like at the Fat Startup, one of his friends that grew up with him was like, yo, Ben's dying to meet you. He's really excited about meeting you. And yeah, the dude that wrote the song, you're divine. So I'm like, Ben Holtz is excited about me and me? Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably you know, much more excited about me and him. So he went up, he did his thing at Fast Startup. Felicia comes in. I recognize her. I said hi to her. And for the people that don't know, Fast Startup is like a hip-hop version of Lean Startup. Is that accurate? I guess somewhat, yeah. But they focus on like how do you bring a technology and hip-hop in one, right? So it was, I'm sorry. Yeah, Fast Startup. So anyway, they ended up doing something else called Tech 808 later on, which got my article, which actually blew up the black fintech later on. I did an event with them, Tech 808, and they actually, um, I got an article through TechCrunch with that, and that further propelled my, my endeavors in fintech. So anyway, I met Ben, met Felicia, and then like a month or so later, Felicia, I get a phone call. I didn't recognize the number. I answer it, and hi, Divine, this is Felicia Horowitz. I kind of did a voice, but <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm like, Felicia, peace, what's going on? What's going on? And she's like, listen, we're having something for Ben for his birthday. When we get back from um, Cons France, How do you, did I pronounce that right? Cons? Cons, yeah. Yeah, Cons France. He was doing something with Kanye over there. When we get back, we'd like to bring you out. I'm like, oh, cool. I'd, I'd love to come. And then that was a turning point when I was, they flew me out. She flew me out. Went to his house, met Tristan Walker, met you know, people around him, his family, friends. It was a surreal moment. I was just so amazed by his beautiful home and people he had around him. Felicia's kindness, her generosity, all these things just culminated in me just feeling like, like just overwhelmed. And then I felt like, you know what? I could accomplish things at this level if I really put my mind to it. So I was that much more inspired and that much more motivated to achieve. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea it was going to be in tech. I was just a recording artist. And, you know, he liked what I do and I did a song for him. So that was where I was at with it. But when I got back on that plane, I ended up writing another song and then... Fast forward a year later, I started ideating the black card and started building my first startup, Black Fintech. So why did you choose Fintech and why did you choose like financial literacy and things like that? So money's always played a big role in my life, both in a negative and a positive way. I've always been someone who hustled and grinded just to get money so I could survive. And I felt that if I had financial literacy, if I had entrepreneurship education, I would have excelled even that much more because I was able to always make the money, but I was always chasing the money instead of having the money chase me. And I had learned that the African-American spending power was $1.1 trillion annually at the time. And I came across this uh, technology for this debit card that someone was like really like kind of pitching to me. And I said, what if I could take this technology, because I was in the technology now, or at least exposed to it, technology now to me was objective. I said, what if I could take this technology and leveraging a way that I could build a product, a debit card that could financially and economically empower this demographic. Because I looked at the African-American spending power versus the African-American financial and economic condition. 
and it, didn't, it made no sense to me. Yeah. So I said, how could I close that gap? How could I solve that problem? Yeah. And, you know, Arthur touched on it a little bit before related to systemic issues. And, um, yeah, we do have that spending power, but a lot of the systemic barriers that we tend to face in our communities, even though we're striving to get money, is like some because a lot of people don't know how to manage their money, they might have bad credit or might have a lot of debt that creates barriers that prevent them from breaking the cycle. And so uh, kudos to you for focusing on that, yeah, that subject. Yeah. So there's a lot of stigma obviously associated with people who were formerly incarcerated. So now you're coming out to the, now you're interested in starting your own business. I'm sure it wasn't easy, but how did you, how were you able to overcome the stigma and just people around you to kind of trust in what you're building? How did you leverage those opportunities? And what was your story like? Because we talk about the storytelling component a lot. So how did you kind of pitch this uh, idea to people around you? Okay, so the first thing I learned was that people in Silicon Valley, when I started building my relationship with Ben, as I started progressing and building, I would be invited to this event, that event. And Ben necessarily wouldn't just introduce tech people to me, but I was around all these people. And I would engage in myself. I would engage in myself and just talk to people. And, and, And my story was known because, you know, it was a big deal that Ben linked up with me and connected with me. TechCrunch did a big article on it when I released the video on his birthday for the song Venture Capitalist, like Ben Horowitz. So that was huge. I was known in, in the tech community now as a friend of Ben's. And it was, a, it was a really, I guess, interesting story considering my background. But the one thing I did was when I engaged people about my story, they connected to it. They connected to my story. So I saw that it didn't matter about my background, but they could actually see and connect with the spirituality of being human. You know, the human potential of, you know, determination, ambition, you know, the hustle, the drive, and how I met Ben. And I saw they were intrigued with my story. So then before I even came up with the the black car product, I said, how can I take my story and how can I turn that into a product? And that's what made me say that if whatever I create, I want to have a social impact component to it that addresses some of the issues I faced, you know, growing up in in this community that was impoverished and being in poverty and having to rely on selling drugs to survive and then on top of that you know being formally incarcerated so that was I knew there was a hurdles I had to overcome and barriers I had to overcome being in tech so that's why it took me a year before I actually ideated the black card and built black fintech because it took that much time for me to really figure out what am I going to do I'm bigger than a rapper I know I'm bigger than a rapper what am I going to create and again things came to me yeah yes things came to me and I said okay financial technology and I ended up and I ended up choosing one of the hardest hardest fields Within technology. And regulated. And most regulated. Exactly. The most regulated. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Like, I didn't understand that. Yeah. Later on, I would learn that. And I was pretty, I was like, pretty impressed with myself that I was able to navigate, get the right people, build Mm -hmm. the right team to be able to get as far as I've gotten to the point that, you know, we're trying to launch the Black Card um, this year. So, it was an amazing journey. And during that, that journey is to go back to the question you asked earlier about recidivism and me keeping going, going back to prison, I was able to break free from that psychological cycle of negativity and criminal activity and selling drugs. And I did that because Ben's belief in me meant so much more than me continuing selling drugs and making my life easier by doing so with that type of negativity and criminal activity. And if it wasn't for Ben Horowitz's belief in me, I would have never really probably stopped. Yeah, that's amazing. And I, I just wanted to kind of point out that 
I think your point about how you were reading all these magazines, the Inc. magazine, Entrepreneur, all these stories, and it was people that didn't look like you, right? It was probably white guys starting companies. And the reason Ben's story caught your attention was because it said hip-hop billionaire. And those kind of, I guess before that, it wasn't on your kind of radar that, hey, you could be into hip-hop and be a billionaire and do all these other things. And then once you kind of saw that, hey, that stereotype got broken, it almost unlocked a potential in you kind of took away that self-limiting belief in you that, hey, you're into hip-hop, you're into music, and you could be a successful entrepreneur. And I think something that we strive to do here at Breaking the Startups is highlighting people like yourself who people could identify with. Because there's a lot of people who are struggling right now, and they think they're the only one. But once they see role models, people like yourself who have been incarcerated, who have struggled, who have parents who kind of didn't provide the best household for them. And despite all these kind of challenges, they were able to rise up and achieve their goals. And I think that's super inspirational to us. Just me sitting here is, I'm getting goosebumps, but I think it'll also be inspirational to people listening right now. And if you um, kind of, I guess, what, what advice would you have for someone who, is, who might be incarcerated right now, who is considering starting their own business or considering tech, what advice would you have for them to kind of break out of that system? Well, yeah, I'd say that for me, my entrance into, into tech was very unique. I would never recommend anyone goes that route that I took, but I will say that they can definitely learn from things that I utilize or the, or the way that I develop my process of breaking into technology the way that I did, because it's not like Ben held my hand. It's not like Ben said, Divine, start a tech company. He didn't say any of that. I was inspired by him, and by him, I was able to not only break free from a criminal lifestyle, but I was also able to look at technology objectively and subjectively because I was always in music and we use all the latest technology in music. I would have the latest Apple computers and the technology to, to produce and create the music. So I was always like using tech already in music, but it was, it was never, never objective. So Ben brought that, that new perspective to me. And then I took a year to really figure out what can I do. And I did have some things I... You no know, soft pitch to Ben early on, but then I, I shifted in, into doing the black fintech. But what, what I would suggest that anybody does is really knowledge is a key. Knowledge is the foundation of all things in existence. And knowledge is really what's always propelled me. That's why when I, when I built my company, I came up with the, the name black. And some people automatically think that's ethnic and racial, but it's not. It's actually a process that I use all my life. And it's an acronym that stands for building leverage, acquiring knowledge. So it's basically saying through the acquirement of knowledge, you're able to build leverage and position yourself to excel, right? And all my life, I've always done that. So no matter what position I found myself in in life, it was always knowledge that brought me to the next level or got me in a better situation or whatever it was. It was always knowledge. So I always emphasize knowledge above all. And not only knowledge, but having a passion about what you're doing and what you want to do and having a focus and having a follow through, having organization being diligent, having perseverance, having ambition, determination, because you're going to need all that. All those are just, are just tools. Those are spiritual tools, mental tools, emotional tools. You're going to need every single one of them to embark on being, being an entrepreneur and, and building a startup or, or starting a small business. You're going to need every single one of them and more. So I had access to relationships. I've always been able to build great relationships at, at a high level. That's what one of my gifts were. I've always been able to excel fast. 
where my peers might take them a year to get to the kilo. It's taken me a month or two months to get to the kilo because I how I apply myself. So it's all about how you apply yourself and you have to have that discipline. It's very important to have discipline. And even myself, like as I've been building my startup, I haven't been 100% perfect and on point with every aspect, but it's all about knowing when you have to be pinpoint accurate, when you have to put that extra discipline in, those extra hours in, that extra time in, right? But really what I've learned from Ben, and I'll add this to, the, to my arsenal that I use, is the focus on the long view, right? I read a lot of books. I read, I read, uh, read Ben's book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, reading Entrepreneur Magazine. I get books on, on, on building startups from people that are, that are seasoned in, in these fields. And, and I read them, and I learn how they did it, and I take on the mindset of them. Sometimes you got to visualize being that individual. So like I told Ben before, I said, Joe, I think about you all the time. I think about you all the time. Why? Because I visualize you as that kilogram of cocaine that I wanted to reach. I let nothing stop me. I let nothing stop me so much so that I thrust myself into prison. I accelerated myself to go to prison because I, I, I was focused so much on getting reaching that kilogram. And now venture capital was where I, want, where I eventually want to be, to be able to empower other people, to empower their grind, to empower their hustle, to give them the opportunity to break into startups or build startups. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So to speak to some things we were talking about earlier, as far as being somebody with a record, formerly incarcerated, a lot of people don't give you opportunity. So I knew that coming into tech, I had to be a thousand times better than, than my male counterpart that's already there that has the Yale background, that has the Stanford background has been, been with the school and then on top of that me being a so-called minority that was also a challenge with the diversity and inclusion issues that Silicon Valley has or the tech industry has so what I did was for me I would basically purchase books or get books like I did in prison I basically use the same methods I use in prison I would get books read them digest them and really like really just pick out the best parts of those books that give the best advice and then I would apply it and I would also you know, with the magazines, rip the, rip the magazine articles out, highlight them, underline them, and just study those. Keep studying, studying, studying. And I became real studious in prison because I was there for so long and I knew I had to, had to learn. So I, that was a very good trait that I picked up. So even, even now I use that on the, in, the, in, in the streets now in the world because I'll, I'll get a book, I'll read a book, and I'll study that book. So I kind of like memorize it, it becomes part of me. But the basic idea is kind of you study the landscape, you understand the map, right? If you're... Right. Uh, moving to a new city, you want to understand all the neighborhoods, where everything is, where's the post office, where's the grocery store, kind of this, applying the same idea to tech, like who are the main players, Exactly. who are the companies, who are the venture capitalists, what a venture capitalist even is, right? Like who are the main players among those? Like, And then basically I'm just kind of like breaking down the entire model of the industry until you're an expert or you know, understand every single piece. So yeah, that's, that's very interesting because I knew that I had to be able to at least even if someone knew my background of being incarcerated, only having an um, eighth grade formal education, mm-hmm. having no tech background, even if they knew those things, how could I reposition their thoughts about me? Mm-hmm. How could I brain hack them or mind hack them mm-hmm. to really embrace me as opposed to reject me, right? Ben understood me. He understood, you know, he understands black coach. He understands that dynamic. So, of course, he embraced me, right? But majority of people in tech aren't going to do that, Right. So I knew that I had to start learning the language, mm-hmm. right? So for instance, capitalism is a language, is a language of, of America, the United States. And if you don't know how to speak the language, 
you become a foreigner in your own country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I had to learn the language. So I would study the vocabulary, understand the, the basic concepts, you know, venture capitalist, scale, and, you know, wh- how, what does scale mean? Equity. Um, equity. You know the um, different series, seed round, series A, series Return B. On so, so it was so so really my whole time over the last two years of, of while I'm building my company has been nothing but a learning curve. Mm-hmm. That's been my biggest barrier because things moving so fast. I have to be able to get this knowledge quick, absorb it, and for me, and I'm very good at that. This was a arduous task for me to do this, but I spent twenty four seven doing it, sitting in my office, over the computer, reading, learning. Then I was able to build my network up of people that have done these things before, namely Ellen P. Leans. She's a former um, alum from Facebook, Google, and Apple. She's been a really, really a great mentor for me in the sense of helping me think through things. Greg Selko, another great friend of mine, built a $100 million company. His company, Carmeloop, did a billion dollars in, uh, in revenue in his lifetime. He gave me an opportunity to be amongst him. I've seen him go through the worst times of, of a company's existence when people are trying to take it from you. So I learned a lot from him being in the trenches. And again, I'm very good at building relationships at high levels. So I was able to seek out people and, and, and study people, who they are in Silicon Valley, who they are in tech, who they are with entrepreneurship, or what they do in entrepreneurship, and how they apply themselves. And just taking all these bits and pieces and really just taking the best parts of it because, you know, you may read something and not everything's going to click for you. Not everything you're going to grasp. And, you, and mind you, I'm somebody who has a, a great formal education. You know what I mean? Even though I'm intelligent and I'm able to digest information and absorb it, and I still never had any formal education beyond eighth grade. So I have to learn how do I, how do I organize information. How do I think through concepts Things that you're taught when if you go even to, how to use a computer, right? Every use, time yeah, you come back absolutely. from a prison, you have to learn the technology advances so fast. Oh yeah, how do how do um, leverage Word? How do you use Word? Yeah. How do you build a you know, PowerPoint? I never knew anything about a deck. Mm-hmm. I just learned how to do a deck probably like six months ago, and I know I can't stop doing decks. PowerPoint <laughs> deck, right? Oh yeah, PowerPoint deck. Yeah, mm-hmm. Exactly, Keynote. PowerPoint deck. So now I want to do a million decks every day. Just be creative because <laughs> I have a creative uh, yeah. part to me. But just like I just learned, you know. All these different concepts of how to organize information and knowledge, which I love. So even though it's been a challenge, it's been a labor of love for me. Yeah. So for a lot of our listeners, some of them might be going through the job search and some of them might be even afraid to send out a cold email to someone uh, that they've never met before. You haven't gone through so much struggle in your life. Can you cover anything that you're afraid of or uh, what advice would you give them? Interesting. I always credit myself with not, not being fearful. And I haven't fear. But at the end of the day, like, my fear is really not not applying myself and being everything I know I could be. You know what I'm saying? Like, not applying myself knowing I could be everything that I, I know I can be, man. That's scary. You know what I'm saying? And that, that fear doesn't, doesn't um, hinder me. That fear propels me. Mm-hmm. That fear causes me to excel, right? And, of course, you go through them times and bounce. Like, I would go through them times where like, I don't want to get in front of people and pitch. I don't want to like talk to people. And mm-hmm. I don't want, you know what I'm saying? I, I never wanted to do none of that. But you know what I said? I said, yo, you know what? Sometimes getting past small fears like that, realizing that on the other side of that fear is your success. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The other side of that fear, you know, if a million dollars is your goal, other side of that fear is that million dollars. Yep. You know what I'm saying? The other side of that fear is whatever you want to accomplish in life. So then I, I just go back to like my prison mindset. 
Like, yo, we're going to get this popping. I get back to my street mentality. Like, let's, we're going in. Guns blazing. Mm-hmm. Easy. You know what I mean? I'm on some biggie. You know, I'm kicking the door, waving the four fours. <laughs> yo. You know what I mean? So when I get that, you know, and I, I go through that because at the end of the day, you know people are more intelligent than you in certain areas, right, of expertise. But I've always had an open mind, though, too. So when I go to these people and I reach out to people on LinkedIn, I reach out to people who have experience in things that I don't or can help me, majority of times I hit. But there's been some misses where people will engage me a second now and two seconds later they don't. So I've been through that, like, you know, going through different individuals. And then when you're popping, when you got the Forbes popping off and you got, yeah. you know, the Black Enterprise going or you got the Tech Crunch. Hey, what's up, Divine? You know, everybody, you everybody love you. You know what I'm saying? Everybody <laughs> yeah. want to. Yo, how can you want to be on my podcast or you want to do this and do that? You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. it's, so it's crazy. So I got a lot of that. But I think that I've, I've proven, I've shown and proven myself. But I realized that in, in entrepreneurship and life in general, when you show you improve yourself, you know, and it's like music, you're only as good as your last hit. Yep. You're only hot as your last hit. That's real. So, you know what I mean? You got to keep pushing. Like you got to keep knocking down doors, man. You got to keep, you know, excelling. You have to keep accomplishing. You have to keep succeeding. That's what people want to see. People love to see the winner. A lot of people hate the winner. Yeah. Because they want to be the winner and can't be, or, or, you know, don't know how to be. But everybody want to see, you know, you keep winning. Yeah. They want the action. They want to see that. So the greatest thing I've learned, man, is really just applying everything that you can as you can. And again, the, the greatest obstacle or barrier for my breaking into startups or building a startup has been the learning curve for me personally. That's yeah. my experience, the learning curve. So anybody that's out there that's afraid to learn, just open your mind up. You may not understand everything right away, but eventually you'll get it all. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you, if you apply yourself. Yeah, and that's a great segue, you know, going into like, you know, the barrier, you start getting the knowledge into like building and breaking into these different spaces. But a lot of times people hear the story after they've achieved breaking into the space or building whatever right. it is that they're building, and they realize that it's not a linear path and there's peaks and valleys, and we've covered a lot. Um, can you talk about um, your biggest or some of your biggest uh, struggles that you face building Black FinTech? Yeah, Black FinTech, Black Card. Black Card's the first product. So, yeah. The first thing I would say the biggest hurdle has, has been having having a criminal background, being an ex-felon, ex-convict, ex-offender, whatever term you, li- you like to use, and being stigmatized by that. Having Only having an eighth grade, eighth grade formal education, having no tech background. Those things have been my greatest struggles and challenges. And after that would be the learning curve of this new space. I knew nothing about technology. I knew nothing about FinTech in particular, the most regulated space within technology, I would say. But I had something that people seen in me. I had raw entrepreneurial thinking, right? Because I didn't have that formal education. So I wasn't boxed in. I was able to be innovative. I was able to think differently, which has made me unique, makes me stand out. So instead of something making me over, being overshadowed, I'm actually standing out above those who went to Stanford and that have the, the college and the knowledge and the, the education behind them. But beyond that, like, and I'll get a little personal, I had never um, asked Ben Horowitz for an official meeting concerning black fintech or the black card. And he knew about it. And I, I kind of kept it on the wrap for a long time, as long as I could. But TechCrunch ended up leaking some of it. Some of it. So then at that point, I knew I had to put my, my foot on the gas and move quick. So I had finally asked Ben, could I sit down with him to discuss Black FinTech and the product I was building, Black Card? And uh, he agreed. I came out to Silicon Valley and I was set to be out 
in Silicon Valley for a week, and I was crazy excited. You know, I was nervous as well, but it was a, it was a positive nervousness and a positive nervous energy that I was gonna go meet and sit with Ben. Like I accomplished it. Like I I'm going to sit down with this dude. I call him the Wizard of Oz. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because he hands out the brains and the you know what I mean and the heart mm-hmm. and the courage <laughs> and all that. Yeah. So um, I'm going to see Oz, man. I'm going to Oz. Yeah. So anyway, I'm off to see the Wizard. I think that's what it's going to be. And I think this is going to be the greatest the greatest week of my life. I got VC meetings set up, speaking to people, you know, to raise my seed round. I'm going to speak to Ben Horowitz. I'm crazy excited. But I got some devastating news, man. A few days before I was to go meet with Ben, I learned that my, my son had passed away. He was a Marine. He excelled on every level and everything he did. And um, he was stationed down in North Carolina. He became a Marine at 17 years old. He was 18 when he passed away. I like to say he transitioned. And the greatest week of my life in 2016 turned into the worst week of my life. And uh, I hit Ben up, let him know what happened. But what's crazy about that is that I was actually with Ben. I was with Ben and Felicia at the time that I got the the news. I immediately went into into denial, and I didn't even let them know what was going on with me. Um, I was probably with them for at least a good... 45 minutes to an hour just receiving this information, blocking it out because I really wasn't in a position to expose my my emotions and any of that because I was still in disbelief myself. After I left them, the reality hit me that this is something that I, I was I was now having to deal with in process. I left Silicon Valley and went to, you know, went to my son, man. And then I was probably off the radar for about 30 days, 45 days while I handled, you know, taking care of his business, burying him, and trying to get my head back in the game of entrepreneurship. So it was a, it was a real ill time. But what I will say is that you just never know who, who loves you. You never know who got your back. You never know who's going to be there for you. And one thing I will say about people in the tech community, including you, Ruben, is that, you know, you all came through, man. The tech community came through, man. We got you, man. Word. People I thought didn't even, you know, didn't really even, people that just knew about me through Ben, people that engaged me slightly, Showed love. I put together a fund for my son. Came through for that. Because to me, like, I, that challenged everything Everything about my, my existence and what I thought and how I perceived life and spirituality. As spiritual as I am, it was challenged by my son's passing. But being as spiritual as I was, I also felt empowered. And I knew that he wouldn't want me to give up. He was a United States Marine. He's willing to, to live and die for his country at the age of 17. He excelled at, on every level. Great kid. And at the end of the day, he was my hero. You know what I mean? And now, you know, he carries me forth, man. Because I knew he wouldn't give up. He wouldn't want me to give up. And he was so proud of me that I was moving in the direction I, I, I've been moving over the last two years since meeting Ben Horowitz, you know, since stopping criminal activity and having the successes that I've had in such a short period of time. Some successes that people have been doing this for much longer than me, much more educated, stronger backgrounds in technology, haven't, ex- haven't succeeded in or haven't, haven't gotten. So... And it was what's crazy about it is that while I was in my in this program with Village Capital, learning about how to build a startup, how to get finance and all that, one of my alumni, he was faced with a death. Wow. And I thought back to that because you knew something was wrong. He was going in and out of the room, you knew something was wrong. Then he paused everything, made us all stop. He called everybody into the room and said, Listen, I have a bad situation right now. He's like, But I'm telling you guys, I'm not gonna give up. And it was real emotional, man. And you could tell it was a death. And it was serious. And I looked at him and said, yo, man. And I was one of the ones that spoke up. Like, everybody else was just quiet. 
and somber at that exact moment. And I spoke up. I said, listen, if you ain't going to give up on you, we ain't going to give up on you. Then we all gave him a hug and, and got him back in the game of entrepreneurship so he could finish what he, what he came to start. And he said, I, I came here to finish this, and I'm going to finish this with y'all. And he did it. So then I think back at that, and a lot of entrepreneurs on the path that are building startups, you know, go through hard times, rough times. The money's running out, you know. You get laid you know, off. Yeah, you get laid off. You don't have the way to finance the next, the next development of your app. Or, you know, your star developer left you, you know. All kinds of stories I've heard in building startups um, that people have had that they face adversity, but the ones who face the worst adversity and kept pushing and kept going are the ones who made it to the other side. 100%. Because this is not easy. It's not. Man, trust me. I'm no joke when it comes, you know, getting in the streets, doing what I do, getting money and hustling. I'm no joke, man. And, and despite, you know, despite my challenges and barriers, I've been no joke since I've been in tech doing yeah. what I'm doing. But this is no joke. Yeah. This is no joke, man. This is real. So I'm glad that I was able to find something that I believed in and was passionate about beyond money, looking at the money aspect to it and wanting to have a social impact to it and wanting to change other people's lives. Because when you look beyond the money, the money comes. Exactly. So don't get in the, the build. Don't think you want to build a startup. I want to be a millionaire and a billionaire and all this other stuff because it does come with the space and the categories. That's part of the rewards, but it doesn't come like you think it's going to come. And it's not going to come just because you focus on money. Half the people who achieved that, it wasn't about money for them. They was doing something they loved. And Ben Holmes makes a good point. He said, follow your passion. I mean, he says, don't follow your passion. Because I, mean, I hear that throughout tech all the time in entrepreneurship, especially in Silicon Valley. Fail fast and all these other things they have. Fail fast and get to market quick. And the other one is uh, that I always think about is uh, follow your passion. Everybody says that. Follow your passion. Follow your passion. Ben Holmes never says that. He said, don't follow your passion. Follow your contribution. So I thought about that. I said, hold on, Ben. Everybody in Silicon Valley is, is saying, follow your passion. Do what you're passionate about. So Ben used a good analogy. He said, yeah, I think it was about American Idol. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, people are passionate about singing. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean everybody should. <laughs> well, a lot of people are passionate about singing. That doesn't mean everybody should. Yep. So just because you follow your passion doesn't mean you're going to succeed at it. It doesn't mean you're going to be, you know, you're going to you know, succeed, basically. You're not going to yeah. su- always succeed at what you're passionate about. So when I thought about Ben saying, follow your passion, I mean, don't follow your passion, follow your contribution, I said, you know what? What if I'm passionate about my contribution? Yeah. I'm winning. <laughs> so I became passionate about my contribution. Yeah. Which is helping other people, the financially excluded with my product. Yep. And to close out on a high note, my son is with me. He's here. I know he is. And he's a lot of reason... I continued to move forward despite him passing and despite going through that dark time. I was off the radar for a long time. To me, it was long. I'm still getting my head together concerning him, but I knew I had to get back in the game because that's, he he, that's where he wanted me. I knew that's where I needed to be. And I bounced back, and I came back even harder. I came back even stronger. Third weekend into 2017, great things on the horizon for me, great things on my radar. And I'm just hungry, and I'm and I'm going and I'm going to keep striving. Can you talk a little bit about those things that you, that you got on the horizon? Yeah, definitely. I'm moving into inspirational, motivational speaking. We're putting things together with that. I've got chosen by um, Georgia State University to be the um, distinguished speaker of 2017. Congratulations! Only, Shout congrats. Out to congrats. Thank you, thank you. They only choose one person, and they chose me. One person a year, they chose me. That's going down um, beginning of March. I've also been, uh, I was reached out to by 
France FinTech. It's an annual event in its second year. It's like you have a keynote keynote speech there. So I'm being flown over to, to France. Dope. So that that's crazy, right? It's for me. That's huge. Um, huge. I never thought I would be giving keynote speeches in Paris, France. <laughs> My first time going to be there, actually. <laughs> and they're flying me over there. And, and, you know, to give the keynote speech at Georgia State University, to me, that's a, that's a huge honor. Yeah. I never thought I would be doing that. Yeah. I always knew I would be successful. And I always had the pa- the passion and determination to succeed and the ambition. I just never knew it would be in this space. So this is totally new to me. And it, it does get overwhelming at times. But um, And then you're launching a tour. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're doing a tour. So, yeah, we're, we're going to do a tour going um, city to city. It's going to be um, involving the formerly incarcerated. It's going to focus on the formerly incarcerated. And we, we keyed off from incarceration to innovation, how the formerly incarcerated paid the debt to society and added value to the world. Beautiful. So we're trying to show the, the, the hidden, I guess the hidden potential or the potential that's uh, unlocked the potential or show how the potential of those that are incarcerated can be unlocked. Yeah. And then how they can contribute and how they can bring value to society even if they pay their debt to society, so. Yeah, I mean, clearly you're the one, you know, or one of the, the people that's gonna that's embracing your background and a leader for the journey and the right person there and anything that we can do to support you, let us know. Absolutely. Yeah. I had Thanks. one more question, actually. Um, so you're super goal-oriented. You always kind of think five, six, like 10 steps ahead. So what I'm curious to hear is, so now that you've already been in the tech industry for a few years, kind of, what do you see yourself in 10 years? Like you're starting a new company now, but kind of what is your long-term vision for yourself? Long-term vision for myself. I'm glad you said that because that's exactly how I think. I was very good at chess. I learned to play chess in prison. I became very, very, very good at it. And I would get, there were some great chess players in prison. Plus, trust me, some of the greatest chess players in the world are in prison. And I would play guys that were better than me purposely. I wouldn't shy away from those games because I knew that they could only make me sharper, make me swifter. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Absolutely. So I would play these guys, and this one guy was my man. He would always beat me, always beat me, and I would get frustrated now. But I would always go back and play him, and I finally would start beating him, right? So I I hone my my chess skills in prison. I take pride in my game. But what I learned from chess is the strategy, the skill, and always thinking ahead, the three moves ahead. And what's ill about it is as a child, I used to play this game called Stratego, and I used to play this other game called Mastermind. Not sure if you're familiar with those games. I know of them. Classic games from the 70s, 80s, actually. So these are two games I played. Listen to what I'm telling you. I played Stratego as a kid. I played Mastermind as a kid. The third game I played as a kid that I loved was Monopoly. Same. We talked about that, Ruben. Absolutely. Right? So if you look at those three things, Mastermind. Yeah. If you think of thinking Grow Rich, Mastermind Group. Yep. Yep. Right? Totally. Strat- All about those masterminds. Stratego is strategy. Right? And Monopoly is money and real estate. So all those things culminated. I became an avid chess player, good at my game. My game is my game is, is tight. But that gave me the skill of, of really being strategic, knowing how to move, and always being able to connect the dots. I'm an ill dot connector. Mm-hmm. I had to bring things and put bring them together, people together, situations together in a very organized manner and in a way that gets me to my end goal. Even if it's a couple months out, whatever it is, I always could see that. So I always knew, remember when I was in prison five years ago, I said I wanted to be a serial entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So after Black is built, I definitely want to move into other businesses and companies and building other startups and foster that in other people. And eventually 
I want to move to becoming a VC. That was my ultimate goal, right? To be a VC, to create a fund, to fund entrepreneurs, because I believe in the grind. I believe in the hustle. I believe in building something from nothing. I believe in, you know, entrepreneurship is the key to, to empowering yourself financially, economically, but as well as giving back value to the world. And taking chances on people. Taking chances on people, Pretty right. Because someone took a chance on me. And that's what I want to do. I want to pay that back. I want to pay that forward. Ben did. Felicia did. And they continue to do to do that. And other people have. So I have, I have a lot of weight on my shoulders to, up, to uphold, you know, what I'm doing to make sure I stay on that right path, to not turn back to drugs, to not turn back to crime. You know, and technology and entrepreneurship has given me a pathway. It has given me hope. Mm-hmm. And it has fueled me to want to just continue that and succeed and be successful. Outside of that, it's just, you know, really just leveraging other talents and skills that I have that I want to get into. But really, you know, the motivational, inspirational um, speaking, building companies, helping other people, you know, and really just, just trying to be an example, man. Yeah, man. So for someone who is listening um, to this episode from prison, what is that one thing you want them to know? Wow. The main thing, never give up on yourself, man. Always believe in you, man. Believe in you. Believe in you. Believe in you. Never stop believing in you. Because once you stop believing in you, you might as well commit suicide, man. And I say that realistically because once you give up on you, man, that's it. What else you have? Because everybody gave up on me when I went to prison for my seven years. They left me for dead. And that could have been literally. But I didn't give up on myself. I, I remained firm in believing I was here for a greater purpose than prison. I was greater than prison. And in fact, I wasn't even in prison. Because I allowed my mind to be so free and so open to not allowing the external to control the internal. Heavy. Wow, amazing. And to close on one thing, another thing I got from Ben, besides focus on the long view or have the long view and focus on that and look for the long view, is that, and I love when he says this, the hard thing about hard things, he says, this ain't checkers, this is motherfucking chess. Yes, sir. <laughs> well... You're definitely inspiring us. You're gonna inspire a lot of people. You leading. You touched a lot of lives. You touched our lives. Thanks again for taking the time to to speak with us. And um, yeah, we look forward thanks to for not giving up and uh, sharing your story. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Amazing for the opportunity. You. Yeah. Thank you Amazing. for the opportunity, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in. Let's break in.